You're listening to episode 57 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. The only reason Warner Brothers won't release the completed Zack Snyder Justice League is because it's crammed with incriminating evidence toward Roy Moore, and the government doesn't want that out right now. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) This is not even the place for that. Um, Join us next time on uh, the Politipals. <laughs> I hope I hope that's wrong. <laughs> I hope that's incorrect. <laughs> We're now um, the conspiracy pals. <laughs> <laughs> this one goes all the way to the top, you guys. Sign me up for the conspiracy pals. Zach, that. Zack Snyder's Justice League is making the frogs gay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a horrible Alex Jones impression. <laughs> that's not even like a good Phil bad impression. That's just a I bad you, impression. I'll tell you what it's better than. Tyler from the long boxes, Alex Jones impression. What, Tyler? Come for me. Ooh, the challenge has been thrown. That's big talk for someone who's currently in New Zealand. Exactly. Yeah, that's why he throws all the shade. He knows there's nothing they can do about it. That's right. Like, what, what are you, you going to do? do? Come Get here? on a plane? Come visit me in my beautiful homeland? Do it. I've got a bed for you to stay on. By the time you get here, the beef will be squashed because you will... Uh, be very tired. You passive-aggressive cutie pie, come sleep on my bed! <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, <laughs> the cuddliest man in the business. Wow. Alright. So, uh, <laughs> a lot has happened since the last episode, and there's so much that we're excited to get into, including The Punisher, which we'll be talking about a little later, that little show that uh, did drop, and we have finally gotten to watch, except for Kale. Uh, he is squeamish. For, that's I'm very squeamish. One batch, I don't know if you guys know. Nickel and I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this. I watch uh, a show that basically has the violence uh, of the Power Rangers on the reg, so... I'm super squeamish. <laughs> On that note, uh, I figure I'll tell you guys where you can find us. Um, we are all over the place, actually. Don't bother. They don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> you, 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 you're likely right, but uh, I'll do it anyway for posterity's sake. So we're on iTunes where we are a five-star rated podcast. Uh, let's keep it that way. Uh, you can go there. You can leave us a rating. You can also leave us a comment. Uh, we appreciate all of that. Uh, we are on all other podcast hosting platforms. Uh, so wherever you like to listen to podcasts, we're going to be over there. Uh, at social media, we are all over at the Comics Pals. So check us out wherever your social media is sold. You can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Uh, we'll read your, your mail on the air, your random questions, your buyer sells, whatever. Um, your opinions. Uh, we won't agree with them probably, but we'll read them. Uh, and then, of course, last but not least, we are on YouTube. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can definitely leave us a like, drop that comment, subscribe to the channel, which is huge. We're on the road to 100 subscribers. If we could hit that by the end of the year, that'd be phenomenal. Um, and of course, share it with your friends in order to further that goal. We need your friends to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, before we blow up, you'll be able to say you knew us when. So. It's the Thanksgiving episode. Uh, a couple days ago was Thanksgiving for us. And uh, I thought we would start the show by talking about what we're thankful for. Yay! 
All right, Margo, since you uh, made that sound. Uh, why don't you- <laughs> that sound. <laughs> why don't you tell us what you're thankful for? Um, so this year, uh, I'm thankful for um, all the small uh, pubs things. and all-, all the small things. All the small things. <laughs> um, the- wait, wait. Was it the roses that she left you by the stairs to show you that she cared? Is that what you're thankful for? I'm unfamiliar with this reference. All the small things to Carry care, on, Marco. Oh, that song sounds familiar. <laughs> um, no, but um, but I- I'm thankful for all the like the small pubs and and publisher uh, publishers and uh press that we've gotten to meet over the past uh, year doing this, especially this like at Wizard World and New York Comic Con, because a lot of the stuff that they've been doing is just phenomenal. Uh, specifically, like, the Black Mass people. Um, so like pubs like that, that like really push the, the medium and, uh, do really inventive and cool things. Uh, it's just, it's nice to see, um, it's refreshing and and it's, it's also where comics I feel start, you know, that, that, that's where they start. They start at those small places at, at the, those indie pubs, like scout comics, um, uh, black mask again, where we, we met, um, Alex Zirit and I, I got to interview him and talk to him a little bit. You know those small guys that uh, just need that that push and that help, knowing that they're doing great things. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely agree with that. And when you said pubs, I thought you were talking about um, bars, and I was. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, those two. No, I mean, honestly, like those two. That's where I'm on the reg. Like if you're if you're a comics pro, that's where comics happen. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Wait, Marco, did you just say you're on the rag? I am the rag. Oh, you genius! <laughs> so at first I thought that was a bit, and then I realized Phil actually thought that. <laughs> I misheard him. Oh my god! Why do we do this show? Uh Pete, you kidding why don't me? You this tell is quality us? content. <laughs> sure. Why don't you tell? Now that we've offended all women, uh, yeah, I'm sure someone thinks it's quality content. <laughs> Wait, are you saying are you saying that Marco's rags aren't quality? Because you can always get Marco's chewable pads on the Pal Store. Gross, dude. <laughs> I don't want. I thought this bit died. Yeah. You're a, a long you're vile. Phil. You're a vile human being. Bits never die when it comes to Phil, but uh, let's keep it moving. Pete, go ahead. Um, yeah, I would say I'm I'm most thankful for uh, all of the creators who have given us the opportunities to talk with them. You know, at some of the major events or coming on the show. Um, you know, because like we're a small outfit and we've gotten to talk to some really really amazing people. Um, you know, like I I got to interview uh, Jerry Conway this year, which was like an amazing moment for me personally. Um. And, you know, we got to talk to people like Gail Simone, you know, uh, and I, I, just the fact that we've gotten the opportunity to um, connect with people like that and then have had the continued support of, you know, um, people who are a little closer to like Dirk, um, which uh, just means a lot, you know, and that we've been able to have these opportunities despite how small we are um, because, you know, these creators are just, you know, good people uh, has been really, really um, heartening to me this year for sure. So I'm thankful for that. Kale? Man, uh, this is by far the worst part about Thanksgiving. 
is going around the table oh and talking about. Oh my fucking god! <laughs> hey, look, look. Be grateful in your hearts all you want. I shouldn't have to talk about it in front of everybody. That's the all Grinch I'm saying. The has rolled right in. <laughs> it's the holiday season. I'm a little extra grumpy. All right. I'm gonna go less heartfelt than you guys, and I, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say common writer. I just, oh my you know god. what? I just, hey, Mr. Grinch, uh, you got termites in your smile. You remind me of the video of that kid who's like, you know what I'm thankful for? Uh, video games. Uh, the Master Chief, he's my hero. And then he yells at his dad and flips the Thanksgiving table. That's you right now, Kale. That's right. Yeah. I'm thankful yeah, for yeah, the yeah. adult Power Rangers, mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's some like good like Japanese drama in there and um and and really bad monster costumes and kung fu and man, I'm just here for it. <laughs> I feel you. I really do, man. Like Power Rangers. I mean, Common Rider, I don't know what that is, but Power Rangers is still really cool. It is what it is, man. For sure. Uh, Phil? Sorry. I'm just laughing over here. (laughs) (laughs) You're like like delirious. (laughs) All right. I am thankful for President Thomas Whitmore because he saved us once again from the Independence Day aliens. Him and David Levinson, played by Jeff Goldblum. Without them, we wouldn't be here. They put down that giant queen in the desert and over in uh, Area 51. I am really grateful that we're all still here after that incident. Go America. Is that first guy you mentioned, Will Smith? No. no. Bill Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Independence Day, Kale? Yeah, of course I would have. I was born on the 4th of July. All right, well, Will Smith was not the president in that movie. <laughs> well, well, one, that's the first problem with that movie. Two, Bill Pullman didn't kill aliens in that movie. He was the president. Will Smith went and, and, to, and, no, no, was no, in so the you, desert no, with no, Jeff Goldblum. You're not remembering our history, man. 20 years ago, Bill Pullman was president, and uh, Steve Hiller, played by Will Smith, Kill those aliens, but they came back. Guys, guys, I have the live feed here. We're losing followers fast. <laughs> the live ticker think, is just. I think dropping. you're right. Yeah. Don't uh, steal my bit. <laughs> someone has to, man. You're off the rails this morning. <laughs> I can't. There's no way for me to just get one of those, you know, like live at the Apollo Canes and pull you off the <laughs> podcast. So we got to do something to shut you up. Uh, so what are you it was really? Like, we were really. Thinking? Yeah, we were. To- we were told to have these genuine, thankful moments and. Like I bared my heart, and this is what and this is what you come to the table with. I'm thankful for surviving after what happened. You <laughs> son okay. of a bitch! Are you done or are you done? <laughs> well, between the two options, I guess I'm done. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, so I'm I'm thankful for comics. Uh, this year has been an awesome year for me for comics. Uh, I've read so much good stuff, old and new. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> this is, this is going to sound weird, but you know, like Secret Empire kept me <laughs> in, enraptured in a way that, uh, an event series hasn't in a really long time. Uh, Doomsday Clock, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, it forced me to reread Watchmen, which I haven't done in like nine years. And I'm so thankful that I did. Um, there's just so much good quality stuff out there. And uh, it was a great year for for comics and for us. So I'm excited to see what 2018 looks like. Yeah, me um, too, man. Yeah, 
before we before we do end this, I do want to give Phil an opportunity to give us a real thing that he's thankful for. Oh, so. why would you let him talk again? I know, right? Um, something legitimate. Uh, um, I'm thankful for my friends and my family and my pals, and I'm most thankful for meeting Grant Morrison this year. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're right. How could I even forget? That was that was the best moment of my year for sure. Yeah, I was very grateful for that. Listeners, if you're not if you're unaware, uh, Sean and Phil got to meet Alan Moore, um, and it was extra you're done. <laughs> we, you and me, you and you're me were done flat. professionally. Well, you know what? You know what? I, the good friends. Sean, <laughs> you you and me were fucking done professionally, mate. <laughs> To give to give credence to what Marco is saying, Alan Moore, who is a dark wizard, <laughs> would try to break our hearts by doing that. <laughs> He'd cast Can you a imagine spell. that? It was just Alan Moore in disguise using a spell just to fuck with you. You fucking <laughs> nerds. <laughs> All right. It's clear that uh, the comics pals have a problem with sentimentality. So we're just going to move along. Hey, Mark uh, Lauer, serious. Anything, <laughs> I would... I would if anything, I'll say you guys are ungrateful for what President Whitmore did and sacrificed, but whatever. Enough. It's God a bad fuck. bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So instead, I'm going to ask you guys a question. <laughs> Does that mean it's time for the random question of the week? Jesus. Strike uh, three. <laughs> so Justice League is, is very much in people's minds right now as a result of the movie coming out and doing what it did. Um, and uh, so... <laughs> and being a thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you guys a question related to the after credit scene in the film. So you're going to have to accept the fact that the movie's been out. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. If you want to skip 30 seconds, you'll be A-okay. Because what I'm about to say won't matter after those 30 seconds. Spoilers! If you could build the Legion of Doom for the films, so the Justice League are going to face off with this team in the next movie, theoretically, including Lex and Deathstroke, who would you put in it? So my my knowledge of the Legion of Doom comes specifically from the uh, Robot Chicken DC specials. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're off to a good start. (laughs) So I would put Gorilla Grodd. um, Nice. Um, Ice, Ice Man. Well done. Uh, Captain Cold. Oh, that guy. Captain Cold. <laughs> um, 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 Black Manta and Fred the Intern. That's six. <laughs> there you go. Rock solid choice. That's a good bit. That's not a bit. That's seriously my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who wants to go next? Uh, I'll I'll go next because I I like I I have a, again like a very surface level knowledge of these characters, so I'm gonna pick the greatest hits, you know. So it's like we've already got Lex and um, Deathstroke and Deathstroke. So I mean Deadshot because I like Will Smith and he's already established, right? So bring him in. Um, I don't feel like they're gonna do Gorilla Grodd in the DCFU. So, like, I would say, I guess, Captain Cold, right? Because he's a Flash villain, right? Yeah. Okay. So, that's solid. Um, 
I guess Chitara. I feel like that's like maybe a tough sell. But not, no, no, that's not. That's not. That's the trick from Thunderchance. <laughs> Join the club, Pete. Wow. Feel, feel the magic. Feel the roar. Thundercats are loose. <laughs> that was, oh, that was a genuine Freudian slip, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. That was hilarious, though. And, um. Yeah, and then Black Manta, I guess, right? And that's oh wait, does Cyborg have who's like a cyborg villain? Um, probably like a human guy. <laughs> <laughs> a human guy. All right. <laughs> well, you know what? My entire relationship with Cyborg comes from Teen Titans, and they fought Slade in that show. So I guess we're all good. Booyah! All right, uh, Phil, you want to go next? All right. Um, so <clears throat> I'm gonna fill the uh, Legion of Doom with villains like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, Do you ever just play it straight? <laughs> Listen, I know, I know, Phil's joking, but for the sake of like an interesting time, I would watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mixel Plexel. Oh no, I would love that. That would be awesome, Mr. Yeah. Mixel Spitlick. That would be good. Oh shit, that'd be awesome. That should just be a movie. Yeah, it should. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Straight, huh? All right. So Lex Luthor, Bizarro. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm gonna say Two Face. Um, I guess it's gotta be Cheetah, right? Um, Black Manta. Like that's it. Um, and that's five, dude. You're done. And uh, Calabac. You don't get Calabac. It's six. You have to include Deathstroke and Lex, so you only get four actual choices. You know what? I'm gonna go back and say Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They're a package deal. Okay, Kale. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna go with what I think they're gonna do instead of uh, my my own. Um. Uh, so they're gonna do Cheetah. I think they're gonna do uh, Zoom or some form of Zoom. I don't think they'll go with Captain Cold or the Rogues. I feel like. Uh, uh, puberty boy Lex Luthor would uh, go with boys. Uh, he would go with <laughs> he would he would go with the most powerful people, and I feel like by that logic he would approach uh, Zoom and another Captain Cold, obviously. <laughs> uh, that and like Je- Jeff Johns and like the DC company over the past few years has they've just had a massive hard on for speedster villains, so. Uh, Black Manta, obviously. And I'm a little torn on my last one because I think it could be either uh, Black Adam or Sinestro. I like it. Checks out. Yeah, which, no, which that one? wouldn't be crazy. Which one do you want to go with? Considering that Black Adam has already been cast, right? Been cast and Shazam also has been cast. Um, I think I'm going to go with Black Adam. Yeah, All right. that seems like a safe bet, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go with Cheetah, uh, Black Manta, uh, <laughs> Grid. So, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Grid is what happens when Cyborg gets corrupted mm-hmm. by yeah. the yeah the crime syndicate. So, I feel like in a in a movie like this, Grid would become corrupted, or Cyborg would become corrupted. Lex Luthor would use him as Grid. And so he would play both a hero and a villain in the same movie. Um, Good call. And then for my last choice, I really, really, really want to say 
Gorilla Grodd because I am in love with that character. Um, yeah, but it ain't happening. Yeah, love Gorilla Grodd. Yeah. And At least so not bad. anytime soon. I got to go with Zoom for sure. <clears throat> I would love a movie with Gorilla Grodd, though. That would be so cool. And he's, I think he's better suited for a Justice League type movie than like a one on one, just because his villain tends to be Flash. That's kind of a weird pairing. Uh, but in a Justice League scenario, him having control over his own like you know kingdom domain, it can serve as their base. Maybe like yeah. I just think that I think there's a lot more room there. See him fight Batman. I don't know why I want to see that. I just want to see that. Have you seen? Uh- I know you don't watch the show, but have you seen the uh, the Flash episodes with Grodd? No, I saw a clip of Grodd though once. They're yeah, they're they're real good. Really, they're real good. Yeah. Okay, well, I might have to check that out. Phil disagrees. All right, fine. Just shit on Kale then. Uh, what else is new? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. I keep it humble. Uh, if you want to work for it, <laughs> if you want to let us know what your Legion of Doom looks like, you can definitely let us know by writing to us, as we said earlier, at the comicspals at gmail.com. Uh, so Doomsday Clock is a thing, it happened, it came out, uh, and we all read it. Um, let's talk about it because this is the comic book event of the year, maybe of this. Of the you know of the twenty tens, um, and uh, does it the 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 big question is did it live up to the hype? You know, with a for for a first issue, did it live up to the hype? Did it do what it had to do? Let's just let's just have a, an open talk about Doomsday Clock. Uh, I'll say yes. I just read it. Uh, I literally just read it. Um, I think I think the the first issue did probably what it had to do. Uh, it set up where the major players are. Uh, it set up, you know, Ozymandias and Rorschach introduced a couple of new people who are interesting, I guess. Um, and then it gave us like the, the inside, the catalyst for Superman's involvement. Yeah. Um, so I've seen a lot of very critical talk about this issue. Um, Overall, I think it's been positive, but I've also seen some some negative stuff. Uh, a lot of people feel like it was too slow, uh, that it doesn't do enough as a first issue to hook you in, especially if you, you know, are a casual reader who's just who doesn't go to the comic shop and just went for the number one to see if it grabbed you. Uh, a lot of people don't like the fact. I mean, by the way, full spoilers here. If you haven't read it, go get it. What are you doing with your life? Um, that war- the new Rorschach is black. A lot of people dislike that, uh, which is silly. But <laughs> what? Comic fans don't like black people. Revelation. Um, but I'm really interested to hear what the rest of you guys have to say about this issue. Uh, Marco, what what do you what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Kale. I think that it it set up where everybody was um and and to your point like where the negative criticism might come from might be people who are unfamiliar with um the watchman history you know being that it was what like 70 years ago they're 70 years ago, 30 years ago now 70 sorry. years sorry. ago <laughs> <For> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um so um i think people who 
come in like not knowing that are definitely going to be thrown for like they're definitely going to be confused but i mean the majority of comics fans have read this book or i would assume have read watchmen um and uh it's like the majority of people who don't read comics that have read a comic have read watchmen yeah yeah so i mean i think that the way that they handled the the new characters um you can say their names yeah uh, like mime and marionette i thought they were really cool they were they were interesting um the way that they reintroduced rorschach was cool because it would have been I, I i appreciate that they didn't do like a whole resurrection thing that's just too comic booky it's not the kind of world that watchmen is set in so uh i really appreciated that um and then making him especially on that aspect for uh rorschach exactly yeah absolutely um so I think they handled the character well. Uh, they they acknowledged, they were very aware that it wasn't the same one. They would meant to reference it in the book. Um, they handled Ozymandias pretty well, I thought. He looked a little more like crazed and stuff, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like the characters were there and at least his character was still there and introducing this new Rorschach, still technically Rorschach. So... I don't know. I felt overall it was it was a strong first issue, and I I'm interested to see where it goes. My only criticisms would be, or actually, my other appreciation was like the art style because it wasn't a direct yeah. it wasn't a direct translation. It wasn't a um, it was it was an adaptation, and it was done it was done tastefully. It yeah, it, was, it wasn't like trying to ape Gibbon style. Which exactly, like, I really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. Um, like that was that was really um that was just nice it was refreshing it felt like it was a mixture of that sort of style and like maybe even like a slight jim lee kind of look um it was it was stronger my only issue might have been a little bit of like the coloring for me seemed a little off um felt a little why how so it 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 didn't feel as i mean and again this was like a, a translation so for me it didn't feel as flat as some of the the original watchman colors hmm. um this was a little bit more like there were like there were more shades involved and i i feel like f- as a not necessarily an, an a no r book oh i get it y- you know what i mean it wasn't it it, it, it didn't uh, capture a sort of like pulp feel f- for me personally um which was something that was heavy heavy in um in Gibbons, in, not, not Gibbons, uh, I forgot the colorist uh, on on Watchmen, but it didn't uh, it didn't translate that directly. I f- feel or John John Higgins, John Higgins, yeah, it didn't. Um, that pop, that pulp, like pop art style, wasn't uh, adapted as well as say the art or the right writing was for me. Yeah, I had that same feeling. I, I felt it felt like it was colored a lot more like a modern comic. Yeah. Um, you know, and it it just that was kind of the one thing that didn't really feel watch many to me. But the in the same breath, like I felt like that kind of worked because it is kind of a bridge between Watchmen and the DCU. Like it isn't just Watchmen two. Yeah, know? yeah. Um yeah, I, I think I think there's some level of validity to that for sure. Uh, Pete, what was your what was your take? I really like this first issue. You know, I think first issues are often underwhelming. You know, like there's there's a lot of like we're just laying groundwork. You know, and this issue does that, and it is slow. 
But I've said before and I'll say again, I don't mind that. You know, like if if the next issue is good, if the next issue is good, like if it goes somewhere that's engaging, then like I don't mind having a slow start because what was there was interesting, I thought. Um, I really appreciated the decision to focus on mostly new characters. You know, like we had um, Marionette and Mime and then this new Rorschach. And, you know, Ozymandias, uh, Ozymandias is like the only original Watchmen character that we really spend a significant amount of time with. Um, so I think like that to me is interesting because I like the fact that like it feels like the world has moved forward. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like Watchmen, but it doesn't feel like we're retreading Watchmen to retread Watchmen, which was what, you know, was always my concern from the beginning. And, you know, hearing John's talk about it, you know, alleviated those fears, but talk is one thing, reading the comic is another. And it wasn't a giant transition, like, from that no. to this. No, it feels totally natural. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I remember thinking, uh, and this isn't even a criticism, this is a good thing, but I remember when, like, before we get the confirmation that Rorschach is someone different, like, I was reading uh, the diary entries that he had, and I was like, this doesn't, like, sound quite like Rorschach. And once you got the reveal, I was like, oh, fuck, like, cool, this totally makes sense. And a thing I like about it is, like, you know, you see all these, like, butthurt fanboys, but, like, there's a legacy to that in the Watchmen universe. The Watchmen that we knew weren't the original Watchmen, save for a few of them. Silk Spectre was Silk Spectre 2. Night Owl was the second Night Owl. Now we have a second Rorschach. Like, that's, like, it's great. Like, I I, I thought that, like, the way that that was executed um, really worked for me. And uh, I think I've seen a lot of people complain that the transition to Superman at the end of the book feels jarring. And um, I think it kind of does. But in the same breath, it's like, I'm thinking of this as a piece, you know, like Doomsday Clock is one work and every issue issue has to work on its own. And I think this issue does. But it's like, I think that was setting us up for where we're going in issue two. You know, it's it's laying a little bit of a thread for you. And like, I appreciated that. Because I did kind of get the feeling of like, you know, we're kind of wrapping up here. I'm getting to the end of the book. Like, I haven't seen hide nor hair of the DC universe. So I think getting that little nod to Superman and the connection there was something that definitely worked for me as well. So, yeah, overall, um, I would say I echo Marco's statements about the art. And um, I'm really looking forward to issue number two. Phil? I have a lot to say on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess to preface everything, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, I was really, really impressed with it. Um, as for the criticism regarding the first issue, from what I have read, they've all been they've been they've all been superficial complaints. Like there's people complaining about it being a sequel to Watchmen. I see that constantly. Uh, I've seen constant criticism of it being a crossover with the DC universe. And I've seen constant criticism of Rorschach's skin color. And it's just like, these aren't valid criticisms. Like, you can, if anything, you criticize, like, Marco criticized the coloring. That's a legitimate criticism, right? But criticizing those superficial things, like, it's a non starter. Um, with regard to Rorschach, the thing I like about it is Rorschach is an ideal. Everything yeah. that he had published in what, uh, the new. Intelligence Frontier, or whatever. New Frontiersman. New Frontiersman. Frontiersman. Like, Rorschach's an ideal. He's like a hyper-libertarian idea. Like, the fact that he dies at the end, but his book is published, that's indicative of a larger 
sense of Rorschach is more of an idea than just being Walter Kovacs. And so him being having a successor makes a lot of sense because a conspiracy and a threat of truth like that, it never dies. It doesn't. As for the setting, I like that the world is on the brink of utter collapse. Like, that's a really fucked up thing to say, but... Um, <laughs> I, I like I like that the stakes are really high and it feels watchmany. It's told through like telecast and news and and things like that and like the little things you get about the president and, the, and Russia, you know, Soviet Union now Russia or whatever. And the one thing that is made extremely apparent through all the context setting of this issue is that this is a world that needs Superman. It doesn't need Watchmen. Yeah. The marionette, the mime, uh, New Rorschach two, and Ozzy. All go on a quest for God, which is a great is, is a great trope in fiction. I really like it. But the truth is, they don't need Dark Manhattan to set everything right. They need a Superman. They need hope. It's the same thing as Justice League, but better. Right. Uh, and the other thing that's great, that's interesting, is having Jeff Johns and Gary Frank back together, having the band back together, their run on Superman, you know, six, seven years ago or whatever, uh is among the best Superman runs ever published. Their books are so good and it's underappreciated, frankly. Um, and this feels like, like the start to the natural conclusion of what they culminated in the past. And I'm really excited to see that. And then when they do finally bring Superman in, they, the new 52 Superman, his parents died in a car accident caused by Ben. Dixelic, whatever, it's an evil version of, of uh, Mixelpitlick from the Fifth Dimension from Grant Morrison's first 18 issues of uh, Action Comics. But in this, it implies it was Dr. Manhattan. And the way they set that up is super ominous. Superman has a nightmare floating above his bed. He never has nightmares. And it was about his parents' murder just at the end of this issue about all this Watchmen stuff and trying to find Dr. Manhattan. I'm very excited to see where this goes. I'm very intrigued, and I think for our first issue, it's great. I, I like all the characters. I thought Ozzy was great. I like his whole thing about having cancer, his dynamic with the new Rorschach, and the new Rorschach's kind of identity crisis. I think this is a fantastic first issue. Also, did you like that he had a new cat? Because I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring it up, yeah. It's like, he was so cute. He looked like a little baby Digimon. Like... uh so i i mean look i I, it's you know i loved it it's that's not in question uh i thought it was phenomenal um i thought it was to be honest i thought it was a a master work in its own right because think about the monumental task right of i'm gonna take this thing that people treat like the holy grail and i'm gonna add to it you know me modern man you know not godly like alan moore and um that's really interesting um Jeff Johns then, ain't no dark wizard <laughs> <laughs> and and i think that that they hit the ball out of the park it, they weren't aping watchmen it definitely does nail the like you know especially in, in the later issues of watchmen it was very tense and you really felt like armageddon was on the brink this is this is 12 o'clock you know this is like one o'clock Right. And it, and it's really interesting, um, how that's all sort of playing out. This cast that Jeff Johns has put together is really cool. Um, a lot of people probably won't remember this, but Mime and Marionette are actually not new characters. 
Um, they actually appeared for those super eagle-eyed fans. They actually appeared in Tim in Tom King's uh, Batman run uh, in the I Am Suicide arc. Huh. Um, yeah, they're they're two of the characters that Batman recruits to join his like Suicide Squad. Holy shit! Yeah. So wait, what are they doing here? Don't know. Oh, That's right? really exactly. crazy. Yeah, I, I read. I think there was like a Polygon article or something that pointed that out that I remembered reading. Um, but yeah, that's like, it's, it's really weird, especially to think that like, it seems like they're going to be like, I get the feeling that there's going to be like a new Watchmen, you know, like we're going to get this new team of like Mime and Marionette and new Rorschach and Ozzy, you know, going on this mission together. And like, I, I get the feeling that we're going to have like a new team that's going to, you know, kind of be a new generation of Watchmen or whatever. And the idea that like two of them are going to be like D fucking list you know, <laughs> characters introduced in Tom King's Batman is really, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Their, their history actually goes even deeper than that. They're from, um, gosh, the imprint, whatever DC was before it was DC. Um, oh, oh, fuck. Charlton? I, yes. Yeah. Yes. They're from Charlton Comics. Uh, oh, that they, makes so much D- sense. DC, yeah. DC wasn't Charlton before it was. Oh, well, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, what's the the Charlton stories? Is where the uh, that's that's where like uh, uh, Captain Adam, uh, Blue Beetle, the Question. Got you. Yeah, the, okay. these are these are all. Someone else comes from these are all. This is where all the archetypes of the Watchmen come from because yeah. originally they were going to be the Charlton characters. Doctor Manhattan is Captain Adam. Rorschach is the Question. Right, and uh, they changed their mind, and Alan Moore made original characters. Right. Right. Yep. So it's very. It's like, we just bought these guys. You can't fucking kill them all off. <laughs> it, it's very interesting and cool the way that John's kind of, you know, reached back and pulled these characters out, especially since they were just used by Tom King. So, and then what is that relationship? Do they exist in both worlds? How do they cross over? If they did, there's so many questions here. Um, but, you know, I think it, technically speaking, the art is phenomenal. Gary Frank is. Uh, one of the best ever uh and he showed it here he respected what gibbons did and did his version of that but the nine panel grid i mean come on how cool was it to see that done again you know oh fucking a yeah man he's a master yeah um jeff johns i think he 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 really he really knocked it out of the park uh the dialogue i thought was crisp uh you could tell that everything that he Everything he wrote down was purposeful, um, and it was tight. You know, like there weren't wasted letters and wasted panels and 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 pieces of dialogue. I pulled out "I Am Suicide" here, and I looked it up online too. Those characters are called Punch and Julie. Yeah, they have different names, but they're the exact same characters. Look at what they do. Well, like mine doesn't talk in in um, he does have the invisible gun though, doesn't he? Shit. Okay, so they're just like mildly different. Yep, they're they're the they're the same characters, but they have some some subtle differences. Fuck. Yeah, I don't know how that. Again, I don't know what the what the connection is. Uh, I don't know if Tom King and Johns had the same idea, or if there is some kind of interrelatedness. I'd be surprised if that wasn't addressed. I would be really surprised if that wasn't somehow a part of this. Um, but uh, yeah, so five stars from me, and I can't wait to see where they go. Superman's involvement now, really interesting. Not what I expected, 
um, from the first issue. I thought we'd see more. I thought we'd see Batman. I thought we'd see Superman, but I'm glad we didn't see Batman, and I'm glad Superman was relegated to just the back matter. I'd be surprised if we saw the rest of the 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 bigger DC characters. I think. Yeah, I think so too. So I actually just pulled up a quote from Jeff Johns about this topic because I was you got me super intrigued. So he, this is what he said. One thing that I thought Alan and Dave did so beautifully was that they took these echoes of Charlton characters. Uh, right, Jeff Johns explained during a press event. One of the things that frees Gary up to do the story is to introduce new characters, and there are these old Charlton characters called Punch and Julie that kind of became the inspiration, uh, and just a touch of inspiration, like the question was for Rorschach. So basically, he was just trying to take the Charlton characters and continue in the same vein, and that's pretty fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, awesome job from for everybody involved. Uh, and just real quick before we move on, um, I did look it up, and the, the original name of DC was National. National okay. Comics. Gotcha. Yeah, okay, but these like- guys are from Charlton. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, they bought I, out like uh, three companies before they became DC. <laughs> uh, more than that, I think. Yeah. Um, There's quite a few. Because like even Captain Marvel was another one that they picked up from Fawcett. Fawcett. Yep. Fawcett, yep. Um, so I, I wanted to present this question to you guys uh, now, since af- after we've read the, the first issue, and I'll if I remember here in a year or whatever, when, when uh, issue 12 comes out, I'd like to present it again. How, how do you guys feel about the way this, this sort of reflects on Alan Moore? So like, there's a lot of beef between the, you know, Alan Moore and, and his estate about the way Watchmen was uh, sort of taken from him. And then, uh, you know, they keep taking the royalties and, and uh, you know, it, it wasn't even supposed to be published past a certain date or something. From my understanding, the way it worked was uh, if it stopped publishing by a certain date, the rights of the characters would revert back to Alan Moore. But because it became so popular and so successful, DC never stopped publishing it. Right. So uh, this this will be the second post Alan Moore uh, Watchmen set of stories uh, you know that that's including uh, the before Watchmen series how do you think this like sits do, do you see what I'm asking there's been, yeah. there's been a lot of controversy online with Alan Moore and like creator own characters kind of thing um, people are upset with the way DC handled uh, the whole Alan Moore thing 30 years 20 30 years ago uh, and they think this is like a bastardization of, of his rights as a creator kind of thing. So I think in specifically in regards to Watchmen, I kind of have a hard time swallowing that a little bit because like he did create these new characters, but he also wanted to use characters that he didn't create. Like his intention was originally to write these characters you know, as characters that weren't his, he based them off other characters. And yeah, I I don't know. Like, I feel like this is a little bit less cut and dry than like you creating something that's a totally new IP and having a big company take it away from you. I think there's definitely the argument to be made there that like Alan Moore probably deserves more money considering how popular Watchmen is. Um, But it's, it's one of those things where I, I kind of, find it tough to want him to have won in that scenario 
because if he did have the rights to rights to Watchmen, I don't know where it would be right now. Like if he was still publishing it and that was the end of it, and we never saw it touched fine. But I could also see Alan Moore being crazy. Alan Moore getting the right to it and being like, well, we don't publish Watchmen anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause that's the kind of guy he is. And it's like, uh, you know, he, he would publish it if he got full proceeds of the money kind of thing. Cause I, 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 I believe that at least. I mean, listen, he, Creator creator rights stuff is very dicey. Normally, you want to see the creator get their fair share 100%. Of course. Um, the question of what is fair is, you know, that's always that's always the big conversation. Uh, in this particular instance, he signed on the dotted line. Uh, my understanding, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but my understanding is that he knew what he was getting himself into. Uh, no one knew how big Watchmen was going to be. No one could have predicted this. DC publishes the book. If they didn't publish it, I would never have read it. That'd be very unfortunate. Um, and, uh, you know, I think considering that they own it, they have the right to do what they please. Uh, is it unfortunate for Alan Moore? Maybe because it's against his wishes. Uh, but at the same time, they own the property. So, you know, I don't even I don't know his his pay. I don't know what he's gotten off of Watchmen, but he's had a very successful career post Watchmen, and his name will always ring out because of Watchmen in large part. Um, and so, you know, I'm it's sad that there's that level of bitterness, uh, but I think that you could make an argument for both sides needing to, uh, you know, come to the table. The DC of now is not the same. Those aren't the same people that you know wronged him or he feels wronged him back then but all all i know about alan moore and his relationship with dc is that he has no interest in a relationship with dc at all and he just wants Watchmen back and that's it and he's very angry and you know yeah and it's like don't get me wrong man i love alan moore like he's a brilliant writer but by all accounts he's kind of a crazy jerk you know, like, it's just like, he was all about the Watchmen movie right up until it was coming out. And then he was just like, nah, like, you know, uh, there was definitely like a point where he, or maybe it wasn't Watchmen, maybe it was V. Uh, but yeah, he was always against Watchmen, the movie. Maybe it's V then, but either way, there was one of the, the projects he was a part of where he had given approval up until the ninth hour and then tried to revoke it and act like he got screwed over i think it was uh the league of extraordinary gentlemen yes oh I mean, that's it, it no you're totally right and don't get me wrong that movie ended up sucking but like <laughs> it, it's just the thing of i feel like i i just i feel like alan moore probably deserves a bigger piece of the pie right because what he created is one of the most influential works and dc's continuing to make money off it to this day great they should probably give him a better deal like they did uh well like they, like they were legally forced to uh, for Schuster, Schuster, Siegel Schuster. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and maybe, maybe that's a conversation that he needs to have with a lawyer. You know, because like I, I'm not saying he doesn't necessarily deserve more money, but like to argue that that DC doesn't deserve the rights to Watchmen, it's like it seems like they're doing everything according to the contract that he signed. Right? They're still publishing the book because why wouldn't they still publish the book? People want to read it. Yeah, it's not like some obscure book that was published and now is irrelevant, right? It's the comic, right? Like <laughs> he's entitled to be grumpy and he's done a lot, a lot for creator-owned comics and he's really forced the narrative and 
he, he he's arguably the most influential and important figure in the entire industry. Um, him being crazy, I mean, he is what he is. He's a sorcerer, you know, having that much power. <laughs> <laughs> having that much power is a huge burden and a tremendous responsibility. So I can't take that away from him. Um, if, if DC was doing more to screw over um, Alan Moore and in, in utilizing his properties in a in a cash grab kind of way, there was a Simpsons joke about baby Watchmen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Before Watchmen is dicey, even though you know that actually might have been good. And I just didn't give it a fair chance. But on the surface level, it came off like a cash grab because it came from sure. corporate offices. Whereas. Uh, Doomsday Clock is a is a pet project for Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, uh, which is why I don't take as much umbrage with it because ultimately it's one creator writing a love letter to another creator, and I think that's okay. But the argument about whether or not Alan Moore is properly compensated, I think, is a legit thing that should at least always be discussed by people in suits. That Alan Moore has done himself no favors, from what I understand. I, it's hard for me to blame DC for not just coming and and bringing the the Brinks truck to his house uh, when he's been who he has been. And if he wants to see more compensation, maybe he should think about the way he's approaching the deal. Yeah, um, wait, but wait, 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 wait. You're right. He should cast a better spell. that's like that's all i'm trying to say is like i'm never one to side with you know a corporate entity over a creator's rights but like you know if the guy played ball a little bit i'm sure he would fucking get more money out of dc yeah so uh but you know we've we've talked enough about that uh we will address doomsday clock more of course in the coming weeks issue two issue three yada yada we're here for it we all enjoyed it what's up kale how often does this come out is it uh, monthly oh shit <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh so let's let's do some news. Um <laughs> Justice League <laughs> released last week and uh it uh didn't light the world on fire, unfortunately. No. <laughs> um Yeah. So <laughs> in its in its first uh weekend it made ninety three point eight million dollars. Um and uh, you know it eclipsed it eclipsed the 100 million on Monday, so it you know um, it, it at least got over that hump. But the projection was that it would make 120 million, and that didn't happen. Um, Do you know over- what the budget was? Yeah, uh, the budget. Shoot, I, I have I had that somewhere. Uh, yeah, but the budget was 300 million. <gasps> it was north of 300 million, not counting. Uh, any advertising, they estimated that that actually came in at over three hundred and fifty million. So the this advertising movie, alone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! So this movie has cost a lot of money and has not been a great return on t- on its investment. However, there is one place where Justice League was a huge hit. China. And that's China. Yep. Uh, did fifty-two million dollars in ticket sales in China, uh, which is thirty percent more than Wonder Woman. Uh, so there's that. Um, and it's sorry, also, fifty-two, uh, fifty-two point one million. Million. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know that that's that's awesome, and uh, this movie is not going to make its money back if you consider both the. Um, 
both the actual cost of making it and the cost of advertising, but a lot of movies don't. No one counts the advertising dollars when they talk about the bottom line of these movies because advertising is just so expensive. Um, do you guys think the Justice League will eclipse $300 million total worldwide before it leaves theaters? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah. Because like, there's, there's probably at least one market it hasn't opened in yet. And if not, um, I, I mean, really, I really thought you were going to say there's at least one person who liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like this is one weekend, right? Like, and it, and it made a, a third of that back. So I, I think to think that it's going to make the other two, uh, isn't unheard of, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it didn't make it back because. I, like, I feel like people f- are, like, not wrong to feel burned by these movies. And when there's, like, just negative critical reception, uh, especially when you look at this holiday season in particular, I feel like, especially if you're into, like, geek shit in general, there's an overload of stuff. You know, like Punisher just came out. Stranger Things was not that long ago. There's, like, a ton of really hot major video games out right now. Like, what? Right, four just came out. Like, I don't know that people are going to be rushing to see Justice League when there's a better way that their twenty dollars could be spent. Um, so I don't, I don't know. And even Doomsday Clock, shit, right? Like, there's so many other major things going on right now that, like, you don't necessarily need to make time for an okay superhero movie. The last time that uh, two superhero movies came out this close together was Spider-Man and Wonder Woman. And that was the difference of uh, almost a month. Uh, So the fact that these movies came out so close together was a bad idea. And to think that Thor didn't eat some of Justice League's uh, income is crazy. Of course it did. And DC made a bad bet. Obviously, that the reason people didn't go see Justice League is all these Marvel drones didn't want to go see DC, DC Cape Kino by the excellent film director Zack Snyder. Speaking of Zack Snyder, a lot of people are upset with how Justice League turned out. And they feel like, of course, as is, as is, as is ever the behavior of internet uh, fans of comic book culture. Uh, now they think, oh, Zack Snyder's version of Justice League was obviously going to be way better <laughs> than the Joss Whedon version. So we need that version. And in that vein, a petition has been launched for Zack Snyder's director's cut of Justice League to release. Um, this petition has already garnered over 30,000 signatures. Uh, it wants 35,000. It'll probably get that. Um, lots of people feel like Joss Whedon's input in the movie hurt it. And that that's a big reason why it's done so poorly. Yeah, obviously the reason why Justice League, like the, the best parts of Justice League, I think, were all the sad, depressing Zack Snyder scenes. Like, every scene that Zack Snyder did was obviously very good. And all the scenes that were enjoyable by Joss Whedon, very bad. So, true. (laughs) Be careful, guys. We don't want Matt Murphy coming after us on Twitter. Oh, no. God forbid. (laughs) So, you know he's gonna anyway. 
Charles Rovin, who produced the movie and has produced everything that DC has done, says that uh, Whedon shot around 15 to 20 percent of the movie. Uh, and of course, the petition oh, that's alleges that's about how much I enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, the petition alleges that it's these scenes that ruined the film uh, and that the shift into a more inspirational tone uh, harmed the final product. Um, the petition is angry. <laughs> the petition is angry that Junkie XL, who does the music for all the DC stuff, um, they're angry that he was replaced by Danny Elfman. Um, which is interesting, uh, especially because no one liked De- uh, Junkie XL when he first became a collaborator, um, and they don't like what he did to Batman's theme. Um, but that being said, there is a petition. Now, if you do want to see some of the stuff that was deleted from Justice League, because we've all seen the trailers and we all know that tons of stuff was left out. There's a great article put together by IGN that has a list of all the stuff from the trailers that we didn't get to see that was cut from the movie, including the Unite the Seven uh, marketing that Justice League was rolling with for a long time that all of a sudden mysteriously disappeared that most people believe was referencing Green Lantern. Uh, so we'll link to that. But what do you guys think about this petition? Entitled internet fuck boys. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, man. It, it's like it's it's hard for me to not like talk about this without like just like <laughs> resorting to like schoolyard mockery. Like Zack Snyder is a bad director. You know, like I don't like Zack Snyder. I regularly fucking make fun of him because I think he sucks. You know, like I I I think he doesn't like especially his superhero movies. They don't understand their source material. No, 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 they, no, no, no. You're just an idiot, and you don't get Zack Snyder's Kino. <laughs> so I, I just, I'm not a fan of his, you know? And, and if you are, that's great. I get why you want to see this cut. Like, whatever. Do it. Put it on a fucking DVD with the main movie when it comes out and appease these people, you know? And, like, they can say that that's better and what, whatever. I don't care. Like, if, if you really want that, fine. But, like, I don't get that at all. Because to me, the parts that were Zack Snyder's parts of the movie are obvious, and they were the parts that were the least interesting. They were slow. They were fucking... It was just Batman v Superman. It's the exact same bland, boring tone. And it's just like, if that's what you want, great for you. Like, I just... I'm so happy that he's not making superhero movies anymore. I'm so over him. Do you do you think when Zack Snyder's directing his actors, he says, no, 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 can you tone it down a bit and be more monotone? Yes. <laughs> he goes he goes in he goes into the like effects office. He's like, guys, can we make this more gray? Or oh I'm sorry, blue, blue. Sean, I uh excuse me, I'm Zack Snyder. I'm gonna need you to uh take that emotional outburst and just tone it down, maybe maybe lower your voice a little bit more. Yes. Uh, see, still too emotional. Guys, guys, look, real quick, let's let's all talk like we're in a Zack Snyder scene right now. Go. Okay, so what if we made every single thing in the movie blue, except for Superman's uniform? Um, it's got to be like a it's got to be like a dark blue though. <laughs> like a really dark blue, blue. almost. <laughs> Martha. Martha. <laughs> 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 oh god all right 
Fuck Zack Snyder. I I I'm I'm not gonna sign the petition, but I kind of <laughs> hope that this director's cut does come out just because I want to see more of what was left on the cutting room floor. Because uh, a lot of cool scenes were in the trailers that we didn't get to see, including a lot of stuff with Cyborg pre Cyborg. Um, and I would love to see more of that. But we were talking about Justice League. We're talking about how much people disliked Justice League. Um, what about the good old days? What about the days where the Justice League were animated? Ooh. Ooh, baby. Now, there's a really interesting story floating around that the original cast of the Justice League, you know, WB show that they used to have back in the day, uh, the original voice cast would like to film, record a feature film. Uh, and so there's a Twitter account called Animated JL uh, that has the following tweet out. Um, I have spoken with Susan Eisenberg, who, who voiced uh, Wonder Woman, uh, and she told me if we want a Justice League animated movie with the original cast, we need to let WB know. Tweet at WB Home End with the hashtag hashtag JL Reunion. Also, Andrea Romano will even come out of retirement to direct it. So That's fucking huge. Right. And you could think that that's a hoax, except for the part where Eisenberg and Kevin Conroy retweeted it. So, there you could, you could jump on the bandwagon with the petition for Zack Snyder's version, or you could like and retweet this and get this made. Let's get behind. Get the, this the is something we can version. all believe in, guys. All right? This is not a partisan issue. We can all agree that the Justice League cartoon was hot fire and we need to reunite. Let's we got to we got to reunite the 7 or 24 if we're talking about unlimited. <laughs> or hundreds. Well, yeah. Wait, so wait. Wait, the Justice League movie wasn't animated? I saw them take down White Martians last week. <laughs> White Martians. That was a pilot of the cartoon. That that movie, that joke didn't land when we did this episode. It's not going to land this one either. I so. mean, a better joke would have been regarding Steppenwolf and how horribly CGI'd he was. Uh, that one was animated. Um, <laughs> oh, you mean skinny Thanos? <laughs> skinny, not purple Thanos? It, it's it's not surprising that uh, they're looking for more work, though. <laughs> they're like, yeah, please give us more work. Have us make an animated Justice League movie. Sure, uh, but would you would you like that? Yes, yes. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Phil would like it. I'm I'm going to answer on his behalf. <laughs> All right, moving right along. <laughs> um, in addition, there's a Harley Quinn adult animated series in the works uh, from the producers of Powerless. This is something that uh, they want. They basically. They want to continue the Harley Quinn madness, and they want Margot Robbie to voice the character. Uh, Powerless, for those of you who are unfamiliar, was a pretty much terrible uh, comedy that aired on NBC that was DC adjacent. Dude, it was um, like such a good idea on its face, but... I- yeah. It, it looks like this show is going to be based around... The uh, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, uh, New 52, DC Rebirth, Harley Quinn stuff, but with an adult sort of take. Uh, do you guys think this is something that we need? Well, I really like the working title so far, uh, Daddy's Little Monster. 
Fuck. I'm gonna damage you, Phil. <laughs> Damn. Are you are you Har- Harley Quinned out? Um. Yes and no. Like, I I hate how I feel about Harley Quinn. You know, because I you know obviously as a fucking person who was alive in the 90s i was a big fan of batman the animated series so i always liked the character you know i love the arkham series of games it's really been her recent explosion in popularity and like the overt sexualization of the character that really has made me harley quinned out so it depends on the tone that the show has like if the show presents her as a in the way that a lot of the better comics have um or so i've been told by harley quinn fans um that could that could be great you know i think there's certainly a market for it right the character is at an all-time high in popularity so you know to me it comes down at the quality of the show am i interested in this no but if it comes out and it's really good and people are like you gotta watch this harley quinn show yeah i'll, I'll check it out i think if they if they if they go with Margot Robbie, I think it'll it it won't work. I think they need to go with Tara Strong and like the you know the That'll original Harley Quinn. Well, she's not the original. Arlene uh, Arlene Sorkin. Sorkin. Sorkin was the original Harley Quinn, and she did it up until the first Arkham Asylum game. Then she retired. Right. Even better. Well, if she's retired, then that doesn't. Yeah, you can't bring her back. Uh, but Tara, yeah, she she can't do the voice anymore. Her voice is too raspy from like cigarettes and stuff. Yeah, and being old. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, Tara Strong is a perfect fit for that. Uh, I I didn't even know she didn't do it originally, so I think that goes to show probably her her level level of talent with it. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a Tara Strong Harley fan. It sounds like Tara Strong to me. Like it sounds very uh, audibly different from uh, Arlene Sorkin, who, for my money, I mean, is the best Harley Quinn. As for being Harleyed out, man. I've been Harleyed out for a long time. <laughs> so Harley Quinn is actually, to me, one of the most compelling characters ever because she exists in two very distinct ways, and she pleases two very different audiences. As part of DC uh, Girls and that initiative, she's right there, and. Girls love her. You know, young girls love that character. She, obviously, she's not sexualized at all in that context. And uh, it works out great. Um, on the original Batman, the animated series show, she was awesome there as well. Uh, very appropriate, I would say, for young uh, young people in general. Anyone could watch that, and there's nothing wrong with Harley Quinn's presentation on there. Yeah, it's like it she, was, to- <clears throat> she was sexy, but she wasn't like... Not, she wasn't like, like that a, wasn't it. Yeah, it, she wasn't like a pinup girl. And so she can appeal to young people. You can put her on anything for a young person and it's fine and no one questions it. But she also exists as a sexual uh, or a sexualized character. Um, and that's that's another aspect of that character. And it's so interesting to me uh, that she works on that level and gets praise almost I wasn't going to say universally, but I know there are a lot of people that dislike that fact, but a ton of praise from both camps. And she's the only character that I can think of allowed to exist on that level. Wonder Woman gets lambasted all the time for not even being sexualized, just for being a character that wears, you know, a skirt. 
um, and and has bare arms and whatnot. Uh, so very interesting, uh, Harley Quinn to me. Yeah, she's certainly a complex figure. Yeah. Yep. So moving right along, uh, we'll jump over to the Marvel side here real quick uh, because now. In the span of one week, we learned that Jude Law was going to appear in Captain Marvel. And very quickly after that, we learned what character he's going to be playing. Uh, because according to Variety, Jude Law is playing Walter Lawson, who astute fans will know as the human guise of Marvel, the original Captain Marvel. So that's huge. I actually didn't, I didn't anticipate that that character would appear in this movie. Yeah, I remember you saying that in past episodes. Um, I'm glad he is, though. You know, I, I kind of thought they could go either way with it. And uh, I, I mean, I feel like he's such a big part of her origin. So I think not representing him, at least in some way, uh, would be would just be weird. So it's funny. I remember this conversation, too. But the reality is I remember distinctly thinking when I was a kid, because I really, really liked Captain Marvel and in particular uh, Janice Bell, his son, because I was reading the Peter David run, and that was my favorite comic book when it was coming out when I was really young. How much I really wanted to see Captain Marvel in a movie, and I never thought it would happen. And so to see this character now as an adult is a little surreal because I always uh, had such a strong affinity toward uh, the Marvel family as a kid. That's cool. Uh yeah, I mean I I'm I'm excited. I I like you know uh, Marvel. The only problem for me here, and I think this is what I said the last time, and I'll just reiterate because that was a while ago, is that I don't want to see her outshone in any way. Um, I want her to be the focus. I want it to be about her, her powers, her abilities, her saving the world, uh, not him. And so if he does have powers, do they grow, do they go the Green Lantern route where he kind of dies within the first like t- 10 minutes of the movie? Does he not use his power? Like, I get, you know, there are a lot of ways they can go with it, but I trust this creative team, these directors to get it right because this movie is important and Marvel's not going to allow Captain Marvel to play second fiddle. I just don't believe it. Not with everything they're putting into this character. Yeah, definitely not. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a problem. Kale, what do you think about that? Um, I actually don't have a horse in this race. I um, I've read one uh, Captain Marvel, Marv, you know, Marvel uh, comic. The whole uh, out of my whole uh, comics career time, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, I you know I, I I'm here for Carol Danvers. Um, Jude Law is a terrific actor. I like Jude Law. Sweet, bring it on. Definitely. Carrie getting a little emotional there. I need you to tone it down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hope they oh, yeah, I, I hope they give uh, Jude Law things to do because uh, like I said, as a kid, strong affinity and I don't want him to take a super backseat, even though I imagine I mean it's not his movie, obviously, but uh, I would still enjoy to see enjoy seeing Marvel do at least some cool shit. I think I think we'll see him do some cool shit. I think we'll see them have like a relationship prior to her becoming Miss Marvel at some capacity, you know, and I feel like his death will probably be like the climax moment, you know, of like that's like her Uncle Ben, 
moment of like, oh, you know, this person really close to me died and I, it was my fault or whatever. And I'm going to take up the mantle and like honor his legacy and be the new Captain Marvel or whatever. And it's like, I think that's going to be a natural passing of the torch kind of moment. I'd be, I'd be willing to bet we, she goes, you know, uh, at some point she's called Ms. Marvel and that's how people refer to her throughout the movie. And then he probably dies at the end. And then we have, uh, uh, a moment similar to I, I think it was in uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick's, um Captain Marvel books where they talk where she talks to Captain America about actually taking the name Captain Marvel. She'll probably have that conversation with Fury or something sure. toward the end of the movie. Yeah, and maybe I, he dies of cancer here. I hope he, he does. does. I really hope he does. I hope he dies of cancer. Jesus, Pete. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, he's going to die. I hope he dies from cancer and not just, you know. Uh, okay. I hope he dies a right. slow, this, painful, this is getting worse. horrifying death. I hope I the hope chemo's really bad. <laughs> I hope he loses hair, everything. That's awful. So as always, uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're about to talk about the Punisher, and what we love to do is have you guys guess the tomato score, the Rotten Tomato score, and the audience score. Now I think that some of you may have already looked at this beforehand. Is that accurate? Yes. Who knows the score? I know the I, score. I knew it, but I think it's changed since I looked last. All right. Yeah, what Pete said. Okay, Kale, do you know it? Not at all. No, I haven't okay. paid any attention to it. All right. So, Phil, you stay out of this. Uh, Pete, Marco, Kale, you guys can go ahead. Uh, so what's the tomato meter score and the audience score? Okay. Uh, so just for transparency, when I did look at it, I it was pretty early on because I remember I saw a headline that it was like the second lowest rated Marvel show, which like really surprised me. And it was at like 40%. But I, I want to say it's gone up since then, since there's been more ratings about it. So I'm going to guess like 61. Okay. I was actually going to say the exact same number. Yeah. And the audience score? Oh, right. The audience score. Uh, the audience score, I'm sure, is very high. Like, I would say it's probably like near perfect, honestly. I'm going to guess like 96. I'm going to say 89. I would say I'm going to go a little higher on the tomato score. I'm going to say 70 on the tomato score. And then uh, probably, yeah, 80, somewhere between 82 and 85 on the uh, audience score. Okay. So the final score for Marvel's The Punisher on the tomato meter is a 61%. Oh, oh shit. What up, Marco? Yeah, nice. <laughs> Good boy. Bing, bing, it bing. doesn't count because you guys cheated. So, <laughs> And the audience score is a 94%. Oh. Holy what, shit. What, I guess 96, right? Yeah. 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 Pizza right. out. So I win. Yeah, I went over. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I felt a little weird about that, right? Because the tomato meter score just... Uh, it's wrong. I, I don't know. Wrong. Yeah. Like, l- listen. Full disclosure. We're about to review it. Uh, I loved it. Right. And spoiler I could for see, reviews right now. <laughs> yeah, I could see some problems with it. Yeah. That people may have, but to say a sixty-one, there's something very, very wrong there. So I went over to IMDb. Uh, Nine point one. Uh, 
9.1. Yeah. Higher than Daredevil. Yeah, that sounds a lot more accurate. And I want to... Huh. Yeah, I want to talk about why the show has such a low tomato meter. I've read a number of reviews for this show. Those Justice League fanboys, I'll tell you what. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking DC stands. Paying money to... Putting paying money to Rotten Tomatoes. That's what it is. Right. Um, they they all say similar things about the show. Why doesn't it have a meaningful commentary on gun control or gun violence? Uh, why is the show full of gratuitous gun violence? Um, Marvel had nothing interesting to say about a show that's coming out just a month after the worst um uh, you know, mass shooting in the history of this country, that's insensitive. Um, you know, all those kind of things. Very, very politicized reviews of this show. And so this is the big question. The big question is, does Punisher, do the creators of this show have a responsibility to comment on gun control, gun violence, or the problem that America has with those two issues. So, so this is something that I like. Oh, well, uh, I, I wanted to mention. Well, I wanted to mention that I compliment what you said. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I made the mistake of going on 4chan to see what they thought, and <laughs> Oof. they were saying there's not enough. <laughs> there's not enough violence, especially on people of color <laughs> and minorities. Great. Thanks for that hot take. Marco, go ahead. <laughs> Wait, are you for real? That, that's what they were saying. I'm sure he so is. Like, Mar- I'm talking about the, politi- the politicization of it, and it's the other side of the, the fence, those assholes saying the opposite thing. But dude, oh 4chan is not a real website. Like, the first thing... <laughs> I don't even want to go into what I saw on there. That, that's not a real website. They don't have real opinions. They're all actual trolls. Marco, go ahead. <laughs> so, um... In watching the like the series, I that was my exact thought process of like, wh- what if anything is this show trying to say about these ideas? Considering um, like they are bringing up topics of like veterans, the effect of PTSD, war in general, um, gun control, stuff like that, um, and like ultimately, and, and and maybe this is just like an analog to the idea of Punisher in general and something we talk about in um like when we talk about um tom king's books right it's like people are put into circumstances and there isn't necessarily a reason and and like this is what i drew from it and like so people who are like looking for a commentary i don't think they should expect to find one because this is just something that i felt what ran throughout this series just like like these are just, these are just these are just emotions and these are just people put in these situations and so like they're not going to comment on it because that's not the point that's not what what the show is trying to get at so those people who like critique it based off that i think that you're putting your politics into it and you can do that like you can do that but i don't think you're critiquing the show at a, on a artistic level yeah I, I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, I actually had a private conversation with Kale uh, when I was about halfway through the series and he asked me how I was feeling about it. And I said this because I had read the report that the show was when I said it was at like a 40% or something like that, I thought. And um, and I said, it, I, I feel like it's totally politi- politically motivated, you know, because the show is really high quality when you're talking about the show. 
Um, to answer your question, no, I don't think it's a piece of art's responsibility to comment on something like that. I don't think like if it wants to, that's great, but I don't think that you're, it's, it's not up to us to project onto an artist and say, your art needs to say this. That's not your job as the viewer. It's your job to view the art and formulate an opinion on it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But to criticize it because you don't think it said the right thing, that's your problem. Like that's, that's to Marco's point. That's you injecting personal politics into something in a way that I think is unreasonable. It's unfair to the work. And it's like the Punisher is not going to fundamentally change as a character, a character who's existed long before our current political atmosphere to serve that narrative. And you expecting it to do that is ridiculous. And, and that's um, not, and that's not to say that art can't be political. It's just like the way in which people have been approaching this show has been. Well, and I also, I, I think the show is political. It does take a stance on some of these issues. It just doesn't take the stance people want it to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, it's straight up, like, and it's not necessarily a thing that I agree with, you know. Um, and I imagine we're going to talk a little bit about gun laws, so, like, let's get into it. But, like, it kind of takes the position of that, well, a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy. Like, it does take that position at times. Like, Karen having a concealed carry permit... And being in a situation where her gun is taken from her and then she's powerless is like a part of the narrative. And like, you don't have to agree with that political opinion, but I think it does push that opinion to some degree. Did you guys? Um, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, Did you guys watch Bojack Horseman by any chance? No. There's an episode. Not all of it, no. There's an episode in the latest season where um, they talk about this, uh, specifically about like gun ownership and how it affects people and specifically women um and so like while watching it i I remembered that episode it was basically uh the purpose of the gun is to not level yourself up to where someone uh is like let's say it's a potential rapist right like or, or like you're trying to defend yourself from somebody from some bad guy in general right the the position is not to bring yourself having that weapon is to not bring yourself up to their level and to their level of threat but to bring that person back down and make them realize that they are doing something wrong and so i saw parallels between that uh and and karen having her gun because for her it's 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 a safety net in making sure other people aren't being like crazy not her uh, not Wanting her, to kill people. Yeah, and not her trying to escalate the situation, but to some extent de-escalate. So, I am very outspokenly uh, not a fan of guns. Um, I think by manufacture, their only design is to hurt, to maim, or to kill. That said, to, to critique and to evaluate this show through a political lens is a complete disservice to the show because the show is spectacular um and the commentary it makes on on guns i don't think is offensive at all um no because it takes a middle of the road position right like it says in that in that scenario yeah like you know maybe there are times where guns make people feel safe and in the right hands they're not they are a tool right that's a position it takes but it also takes a lot of positions about the horrors of fucking violence and war and 
um, you know, espionage and shit like that too, which are very antithetical to the same kind of political position that would defend guns, generally speaking, right? Frank Castle as a character is both a proclamation and a uh, uh, a critique of of gun control. He is both. He's both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think what what I feel like Punisher has to say about guns, right, is that in a perfect world, no one would need a gun, but it's not a perfect world. So we're glad that people like Frank Castle have guns. That's the position that I feel like it takes, but I don't think it glorifies it in a way that is problematic. But at the same time, we're not happy Frank Castle has guns because Frank Castle is a murderer. He, but like his, the morality of what he does is what's gray. Right. Yeah. And, and I think they talk a lot about what that's done to Frank is that we're not happy that Frank has guns because look at poor Frank. So it, it, to me, the level of, of ridiculousness surrounding the conversation about this show is just, it's so reflective of where we're at as a people. This is a show that is about something very specific. All right. It's about a man who was done very big wrongs, you know, by people who betrayed him, people that he trusted. And he is so burned and so fractured as a human that this is how he has to deal with it. That's horrible. And there isn't any character on the show who's gung ho about Frank Castle murdering everybody. Even Micro has problems with how Frank does what he does. No one's cool with it. It's bad. It's established that it's bad. Karen Page, gun owner, hates what Punisher does. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's ever a glorification of Frank. You know, Frank is definitely the hero. And I think, like, there are a lot of people who see the good in him. But ultimately, the narrative is that he's a fucking broken man who's been betrayed by, you know, his loved ones, his country, and, you know, basically everything he ever believed in. And I think like part, you know, you can go watch my interview with Jerry. One of the things he says is part of the reason that people resonate with Frank is that you feel sympathy for him. What he does is gross, but you sure understand the reasons that he does them. And like even some of the vile, violent things that you watch him do. He's a murderer, but he's not a monster. I mean, even if you think he is a monster, you know, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. That's my interpretation of him. Right. Whatever your perception of the character is, of the show, whatever, you have to remove the political elements from that. Because listen, if, okay, if you're, if you are hurting uh, about the significant problems that we've had in this country regarding gun violence, if that's something that's eating at you, if that, if you are um, traumatized, you shouldn't watch a show like this. You should know that a show called The Punisher where his symbol is made out of literal bullets, isn't for you. And that's okay. It's okay to opt out and say, look, you know what? Maybe it's good. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's terrible. Not for me. That's fine. Yeah, look, Kale uh, did that. Right. I was literally about to say, uh, unless you're a part of the comics, pals. <laughs> yeah, I didn't give you shit for it. But, but, but to say it's a bad show because it doesn't align with your political views, why is everything so politicized? And on top of that, Every year, how many dozens of action shows or movies come out where these guys are getting exploded, blown up? Nobody says anything. A Marvel show with a guy called The Punisher comes out. Everybody's got a problem. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing to me. As violent as I thought, like the pilot was, I've seen worse stuff on an episode of CSI. Like Logan was horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. like we watched men get fucking butchered. You know, in in that show, and I, I, I yeah, I don't know. I think it's ridiculous. I, I think it's a it's a definitely a highly politicized show. And I think it's because it's easy to look at the surface level of Punisher and be like, Oh, it's this right wing pro gun pro war pro. And it's not that, you know, it features characters that are exist definitely in that world. But if you don't, if you're not, if you don't realize what Punisher has to say about war is nothing good, then you're not paying attention. You know, you're allowing your personal politics to, either color your view of what's going on in this narrative in such a way that it's ridiculous or you're allowing yourself to ignore the realities of the narrative for it to fit your political message or your political viewpoint and that's 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 my two cents on it now i want to move into talking about the actual content of the show because that's what these reviews don't do and that's what we're going to do but before i do that i want to end with something that i thought was absolutely brilliant um so stephen grant is a comic book writer And uh, he had this to say about Punisher. Uh, Heidegger, who took Kierkegaard's philosophy further, comes even closer to describing the Punisher. Since we can never hope to understand why we're here, if there's even anything to understand, the individual should choose a goal and pursue it wholeheartedly, despite the certainty of death and the meaningless of action. That's sure the Punisher as I conceived him, a man who knows he's going to die and who knows in the big picture his actions will count for nothing, but who pursues his course because this is what he has chosen to do. I think that very accurately explains who the Punisher is, what he's doing, what his motivations are, and where his head is at. All the stuff that we just talked about is not in his mind. This is the only thing that's in his mind. Revenge. He lives for it. That's it. Right? Uh, and so I think the show does a fantastic job of showcasing um, exactly where this character's at from episode one. I mean, even from Daredevil, right? Like, such an amazing job capturing the mindset of a guy who would do this. Um, and it benefits hugely from being a television show uh, and not a movie in that respect, I would say. I don't I don't think you can do the Punisher justice in a movie because of like. I think the the reason that like my knee jerk thoughts about the Punisher is that I'm not a fan of him is because of how easy it is to turn him into a trope. Um, and a trope that I'm not interested in. And I think the way that they handle Frank in these books, um, speaks to the best portrayals of the character of showing like, he's a, he's a violent man, but he's a broken man, you know? And I think showing the tenderness that, you know, and not to get into too many spoilers, right? Cause I want to move on, but the tenderness that we do see from Frank, like specifically when he interacts with children, you know, when he interacts with, uh, you know, civilians, um, shows. Yeah. Right. Right. Like he, there's, there's, um, there's a lot that it has to say, I think that goes against the way people are judging it, you know, and the way that people want to characterize it, you know? And I think, um, to your point, you can't get a Frank that has that many shades in anything, but uh, a series like this where we get to spend 13 hours with the character, you know? 
I I really want to just actually jump right into spoilers. Um, yeah, let's do just it. Be, yeah, just you know, I just want to get right into it. So let's just let's just go, you know, balls out here. So just real quick, though, I guess before we do that, right? Like, I really liked it. You should go watch it. What's up, Kale? I was just gonna say, yeah. Can I uh, give mine just for the the people who are like me? Just yeah. my spoiler free review of the pilot. Uh, for me, it was it was violent. Um, I don't. Uh, I've never been a fan of the the Punisher. Um, I I had no interest in watching it up until you know we were told we should watch it, have to watch it. <laughs> um, uh, but I uh, yeah, I, I I didn't get through the the first episode. Um, if you weren't a fan of any of the violence in any of the other Netflix series, like specifically, probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the most violent things probably in Daredevil, when, you know, Kingpin cuts that guy's head off or whatever. What? Um, Luke Cage definitely has some really fucking violent stuff in it too, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, they all do. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't see Luke Cage, but um, I this, this for me was... Uh, this first episode was way worse than any of that because it's it all happens all at once and um I I wasn't here for it um and it, and like I don't just mean violence like at the end of the first episode he kills three people with a hammer so like I'm not not uh you know I I don't feel like it's much to say that that's that's too much for regular people. Um, uh, for me, the, f the, the pilot wasn't very engaging. Um, I had trouble caring about the, the person Frank has to rescue or whatever. And I wasn't especially sorry that any of the stuff that happened did. Uh, so for me, just going off the first episode, I, I wasn't into it. Um, so heads up, it's really violent. Proceed as you will. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Phil, your quick take before we jump into spoilers. I mean, what can I say? Uh, this show was spectacular. Um, I thought it was... I think it's the second best season of any of the Netflix shows. Behind the first season of Daredevil. Uh, I, I think I actually agree with you. I, I was blown away. I thought it was fucking spectacular it was well-rounded it's a story about american trauma it's a story about post-traumatic stress disorder it's a story about honor and what it means uh and displaced veterans uh it's 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 and, and it's, a, it's a story about gun control to, to an extent it's a it's a story about violence and terrorism it, it's it's exceptional marco yeah, it was, I think, I think for me, it beat out Daredevil, um, just, wow. just for some of its, uh, like, there were good shots here, um, it's the way it handled the, the character and interactions, it was a slow build up, so I can, uh, I can get why, why Kale, like, felt like it didn't capture anything, because it, it was, but, like, it ramps up, and it just sort of, it, it goes through to the end strong, I feel. You know what? Uh, just to comment on something that you just said, Marco, I do think one of the things that really makes this show strong is that I think 
John Bernthal is probably the best leading actor out of any of the other. And like, I like all these other characters, right? Like I love Charlie Cox and, uh, Jessica, um, Kristen Ritter. Not Jessica Jones, Kristen Ritter. I almost said Jessica Ritter. Um, you know, like, and, uh, even Mike Coulter, right? Like I think those, they're all great, uh, leads, but John Bernthal's a really, visceral. really talented actor. He's visceral. You know, he really, I think is inside Frank Castle and um, the directors work with that in a really meaningful way. There's so many shots of when he has those, like the dream sequences or like these disorienting moments and stuff like that, that feel very up close and personal, you know? Yeah. yeah I, have a, I have a lot to say about those. I think so. We can get like probably into it. Yeah. yeah let's do it. Sean, what are your thoughts? Just my, my quick, um, my quick take is that uh, it's phenomenal. I liked it more than Daredevil season one. Pound wow, for pound. Oh my season, God. Season two for season. Guys. Yeah. Season for season. Punisher did it for me more. Did you like it more That's than season cool. two? Because I know you like season two more. Uh, probably. Probably. Yes. But wow. I have to watch season two again. But I definitely liked it more than uh, Daredevil season one. It speaks to me in a big time way. Uh, it was extremely emotional. I got way more emotional than I thought I would. We'll talk about that more. I loved the I characters. I cried a couple times, man. Me too. This cast is um, D- D- Lieberman. Awesome. Oh my god, awesome. I Dude, loved Lieberman. That guy, like he was amazing. Their dynamic was so good. His fucking yep. kids. What great kid actors. Yep. Yeah, they were good. Um, Russo. Yeah. Holy crap. And Sa- I thought Sarah too. Like everybody. All the scenes with yep. her were fucking really good. Like the the whole relationship that she had with Pete, you know, was like oh, it, I don't know, man. It really got to me. The family drama of it really hit home. The 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 problems that I have with this show are very very minimal. Uh and uh if if I had to shout out anything, it's just that maybe uh, the first couple things that happen, like in the first two episodes or so, are pretty irrelevant to the like later stuff. But other than that, I have no issues. Like once the plot gets going, it doesn't it doesn't make mistakes mm-hmm. in my opinion. My yeah. my only criticism of the acting is Amber Rose Riva, her American accent, terrible. So you guys mentioned that in you know earlier, and who, who uh, she? I didn't know she, she played uh, Madani. Madani. Dina oh, Madani. Okay. I didn't know that she wasn't American, and until I read you guys saying that, I never even thought about it at all. I never noticed, never had a problem with the way she sounded. Yeah, same. I didn't think it. I didn't think it was as bad as Phil did. Like, but I, I don't usually like. I didn't know Charlie Cox was British after the first season of Daredevil, right? Until I like saw an interview with him, I knew she was British based on her American accent. Yeah, I was. I was listening to her talk, and I was like, "Where are you from?" And I was like, oh, you're because like there were points where she was just speaking with her normal speaking voice because then I looked up what she sounded like outside of it. So uh, I think we're we're pretty good to just jump into the spoilers. Let's start. Now, yeah? we're, we're chopping right, at the cool. bit to do so. Yeah. So if you if you haven't watched it and plan to and don't want spoilers, jump off. Um, but uh, otherwise, stick with us because yeah, like, come yeah, on back when you finish. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, so let's just dive right in. Uh, I think we could probably talk more about, uh, Punisher, Frank Castle here and his journey throughout the show. He felt like a walking Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. 
Like, especially in the the first couple episodes where he's just, like, fucking slinging this hammer for 13 hours a day and playing shitty blues guitar. <laughs> oh, my God. Frank Cat. I mean, I don't think this show would have been nearly as good without John Barenthal. He carries it on his shoulders. He's a phenomenal actor. Like, people do not give him enough credit because he only works in fucking genre stuff on TV. You know, but, like, he's a phenomenal actor. I, I, I can't get over it. And he, in an interview, said that the character scarred him because he's a method actor. And so to get into the castle, the head of the castle, <laughs> Frank Castle. <laughs> get inside the castle. He had to siege the castle. <laughs> um, uh, I can see how that would do something to a man because Frank is a man who's lost so much. And that's what makes all the stakes because Frank is an extremely honor driven man. And when when people stab him in the back that he trusts that you feel it it hurts because frank is so visceral he's so emotional but at the same time he's so detached because of how much as sean said how much he's been burned um and you resonate with everything that happens to him as a character throughout the entire season something yeah. I, something i really liked about it too is that i think Frank as a character, right, in general, not only just in the way he's actually portrayed, but I think as an abstract concept, is like this pillar of very traditional masculinity, right? Like he's a soldier, he's uh, he's a fighter, you know, and like he comments on how he became a soldier because he wanted to fight, you know, and he, he had a taste for blood, basically. Um, but what I love about that is that they portray not necessarily the dangers of, of being like that, but the dangers of succumbing to that kind of lifestyle. You know, that like he is a man that's not only broken by what's been taken away from him, by, but, but by the things that he's seen and the things that he's done and the things he's been forced to do, you know? And uh, he's a man who's been twisted by violence. There is still a core of, um, of goodness there. Of, of like, and not just goodness, not just honor, but of like, uh, tenderness. You know, I think specifically, again, the way he's shown to be with children, uh, time and time again is that, you know, like, he, uh, he's, he's definitely not, you know, I, he, there are many times where Frank Castle is, is, there's a parallel drawn between him and somebody who is a bad guy, right? And the show constantly does a way of showing us the difference between them, right? Frank does grisly things. Frank is a, is a weapon. Frank is a fucking animal. But he has a basic humanity in him that the people that he fights have lost. And I think it does a really good job of reinforcing that. It's really interesting because everything about him is juxtaposed to Carl's uh, support group. Yeah. Because, really? uh, yeah, because Frank has internalized all this trauma into an extremely interesting way, you know, whereas yeah, yeah. Carl has this support group of people and they're trying to work through the trauma and certain people like Lewis, who we'll talk about, I'm sure uh, he becomes the, the antithesis of Frank Castle. What's what's interesting about that that moment specifically in the in the first episode is he 
you know, he walks into the hallway where they're having that support group. And then, like, you see him kind of standing there. And then the camera goes in to everybody talking. And it's kind of like a, it's almost like a, a look inside Frank's mind. So it's, it's suggesting that exactly what you just said, like he's internalized all of this. Yeah. And, um, uh, again, to Pete's point, the show does such an amazing job of using these other characters as kind of like fun house mirror versions of what Frank could be. If X, you know, um, Ben or Bill, Bill Russo didn't have the family, right? He had nothing tethering him to the world that he lost. So he goes to the war. He comes back twisted too, but he just, he's, he has no humanity and he's the cool guy. He's the swaggy guy, but he doesn't care about humans. He just there's, wants, there's nothing wants. there. Yeah. Right. It's just the veneer. Right. Lewis comes back. He had family. They're still intact, but he is broken. And he's he a child. Right. He can't work his way around his problems. And so he does what he is taught to do. He learned to resolve his problems through fighting through war. That's what he's going to continue to do. And he's just, a man, you know, a man without a country. He's just doing his own thing. Curtis, he's broken too, but he found a way out of it. And so these are all different avenues, right? But he didn't though. He said every time he talks at the meeting, he's talking to himself. Well, like sure, to an extent. What I mean is that he's not still in Afghanistan. You know, he's not, he's, he's found a coping mechanism that works for him. Yeah. It's not, not to say he's cured, but I mean, he's the only character we see who's dealing with his grief and his trauma in a way that's positive. You know, is that like he's using his grief to help other people and to try to live a, an honest life. And that's really admirable, you know? Um, and I think to, to point out, the thing that you're saying, or not to point it out, but to, uh, in that same line of thinking, the mirror image, right? Uh, Sarah is the same way, right? Of, of the, the grief, you know, albeit it's, it's a bit of an illusion, but the, the grieving spouse, you know, that's Frank too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, and so I think that the supporting cast, so like you often talk about how important a supporting cast is to, uh, any kind of, you know, media, whether it's a show or a movie, whatever. This is a show that has a supporting cast that is actually perfect for its main character because they all in some way either reinforce, support, or go directly against what Frank is fundamentally. Uh, and you can see him in everybody on some level. Totally. And I think like, you know, we've, we've sung the praises of the supporting characters in some of these other shows because they're great, but usually there's like one or two standout characters. The show is like, I feel like almost every character is really well written, has clear motivations, and has a story that is like tied to Frank, but separate from him. You know, like obviously David, Madani, all these other like supporting characters that are also like main players. Like they have, like obviously their stories cross paths with Frank and what Frank has to do, but they have their own arc that exists before and after Frank. And that's, that's so rare, right? Like even like, you know, we love Foggy and Karen, but like Foggy and Karen, so like so much of their character and their development is tied to Matt and not themselves, you know? And, uh, 
not always, but often, right? Karen, I think, gets a little more development. But uh, you look at every supporting character in The Punisher, excluding the supporting characters, supporting characters, because there are a few of those, <laughs> um, which is, again, that speaks to how fleshed out they are, right? Um, they all, they're all real developed characters that have, like, they have a lot to do. So you get attached to them. You know, like, Madani's plot doesn't connect with Frank in a tangible way until, like, two-thirds of the way through the series. You know, she's got her own thing going on. Totally. And her own cast of characters that are totally unrelated to Frank. People who never even meet Frank. Yes. it's People that don't even know he's alive. Yeah, seriously. Like, they're just totally separate from her world. Like, her world is distinctly different from Frank's world. And the fact that they're all that developed is great. And David's is a little bit different because Frank gets directly involved in his family in a more tangible way. But in in the beginning of the series, Micro David is separate from Frank as well. It isn't until they actually gain the trust and become partners where there's really the the step in for Frank into that world in a really significant way. It happens little by little. But uh, I think that's that's a testament to how well these characters are written. The supporting characters are so developed and have such clear character arcs. When Dina and uh, Jigsaw are having an intimate relationship in that moment... Russo, Russo. Sorry. When, when Russo and uh, Dina are having that relationship and you see the, rea- the, the, the slow realization that this is a sociopathic killer who has done on, uh, who's killed her partner. Um, that's an amazing scene. It's visceral. You, you yeah. feel, you feel the disgust, the shower the, scene or like the, oh, the, uh, that the, was the, the, yeah, that was, that was, I was, uh, I was having a visceral reaction watching that. Yeah. I was mortified. Yeah. yeah. And David, uh, uh, micro his character arc is so satisfying that by the end when zach his son hugs him after being you know dealing with having his father dead yeah. for a year yeah. i had an extremely emotional reaction to that because like oh zach zach, <laughs> zach came back he needed this hug <laughs> yeah um, i i absolutely cried that was a huge moment and the way that they the way that they built to that because again lieberman is watching his family the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's, could you imagine, you know, the world outside your window type deal where it's like you can see everything unfolding. You see your, your, your family struggling, your kids coming home with grades, everything else, and you can't do anything, you know, that's horrible. And, and his way out of that nightmare is through Frank. And their dichotomy as a, as a, as a, as a buddy. Like tandem is amazing. They play off each other so so well. It carries the whole show. Yeah, I agree. I think they have better chemistry than any other duo that we've seen, save for maybe uh, Matt and Foggy. But that is so much more implied than this. Like you know, you see this relationship develop from Frank torturing him to him crying over Frank's body. You know, and and the other thing too is like this show doesn't work without Lieberman at like at all. He's the emotional core. Right. Whereas I think there's, there's a daredevil show without foggy. 
You, you need Lieberman involved. You need his family. You need his world for this show to function so well. Punisher as a character with nobody to play off of. That's not a show I'm terribly interested in. Whereas this, this, they played it perfectly. I think it's also the thing of that, like, the reality of Frank Castle is Frank Castle doesn't get a happy ending. And it's either because he can't, because it destroys the, core of the character or because you know as as maybe he thinks like maybe he doesn't deserve one you know they talk about that yeah right you know and and maybe his his destiny is to be this fucking ronin you know this wandering gunman who can you know basically just pull a mad max roll up save the day and roll out because there is no happy ending for him but he can preserve it for someone else and that's enough of a win yeah that's exactly you know? and, that's exactly right he's Adoichi. Who was like one of the most prolific film characters in Japanese cinema? He had like forty films. That's the Wandering Ronin. Exactly. That's Frank. Frank's the. That's that's Frank. He's that character. You know. Um, and, and that's that's reflected in 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 Logan too, right? Through westerns of the thing of like you know I forget the western that they show in the movie, Shames. but the, right. Yes, thank you. And the entire thing is that like, well, I have to leave. Because I'm the gunman, and the gunman doesn't get to settle down and have a normal life. Like that's not who I am. But I got, I got to, prov- I got to provide you with the chance for what I can't have, and like that's the closest thing I'm going to get to peace, and that's good enough. It's, you know, it's, like it's, it's like Frank's not being able to celebrate Thanksgiving with Lieberman's family. It, he can't have that moment, and it's it's sad because that's all I wanted for him, but he can't have that. You know, it's 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 the same. It's it's the end of Fury Road, right? The Max the wa- brings the water back, and there's this. All right, well now I have to leave. You know, like I've done what I'm what I was here to do, and it's time for me to move on and and find another reason to keep going. And and so one of the things that I really appreciated about this show and the way it differs from the comic book version of the Punisher is that the the comic book version of the Punisher distinctly sets up a character that could exist for however long because his goal is based around something you can't eliminate like Batman. Uh, Punisher's goal is, well, okay, crime killed my family, so I'm going to end crime. I'm going to wage war on crime. You're never going to end that. Um, and so that's why he's been in action in comics continuity for 30 years. Punisher has been Punisher for 30 years. I have no interest in that because that's ridiculous. You would have died or some something would have happened to you in 30 years. But this version of the Punisher, where his goal, his targets are very specific individuals, right? Where it's like, I don't have, it's not the military I'm at war with. It's these guys. It's these people that did me wrong. That is so much more compelling for me. And it pays off in very specific ways where you see him facing off with Billy Russo, with Agent Orange, with these people who clearly did him dirty. And to see him get those victories, I don't know that Punisher, uh, you know, that Frank just goes off into the sunset. But I also don't think he just goes and just starts killing random goons either. I think he's in a holding pattern when this show ends. And to me, that's compelling because obviously we know that it's not over for him. Stuff happens at the end. We'll talk about that a little later. That's going to draw him out once more. But that's the effectiveness of this show that it doesn't just say he's just a killer. He just is going to kill whoever. Anybody who looks at him sideways is dead. That's not compelling. Instead, they gave us something heartfelt, something real. But at the same time, the daughter of David Sarah, right? Is that her name? No, Leo. 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 
Leo Sarah's the wife. When she's trying to to come to terms with the fact that Pete is actually Frank, Pete was his alias, and she's like, Frank's a lot scarier than Pete. And he's like, I guess so, kiddo. And it's just like that's that's the reality is that Frank Frank is scary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, he's he's been made into a monster by his circumstances. Um. So and let's he's, talk he's sure not fucking shy about it either. <laughs> no, no. Um, let's talk about uh, Billy Russo. Who Billy Russo? What a fucking rat face piece of shit, Billy Russo. That's a, yeah, that's a character <laughs> that I had a very interesting relationship throughout with because I never saw it coming that he uh, had actually betrayed Frank from you know years ago. I never, I didn't see that. Uh, so what do you guys think of, of Russo? It's funny because in our group chat, after I finished episode three, I was like, oh, no, Billy's bad. <laughs> I, there was this, there was the interaction where he takes Frank off of Agent Orange, William Rollins, and he's like, look at yourself. I was like, oh, shit, Billy's bad. I just had a feeling because, like, Frank's story only works if he gets if he's miserable. And this guy is his only other family. His story was amazing. He... He's he's Wilson Fisk level good. Yeah, that's I think another real strength of this show is like unlike Luke Cage, it establishes multiple good villains. Yeah, you know, and like not to say that all the villains in Luke Cage are bad, right? But I think it it establishes one titanic force, and I think this show does that a few times over. You know, there are multiple big bads that feel like legitimate threats, um, and each has an emotional stake for Frank. You know, the reason he needs to take out Agent Orange is wholly different than the reason he needs to take out Billy Russo. Or Lewis. Or Lewis. Right. Exactly. Uh, so I, I actually liked Billy's character a whole lot. Yeah. Um, I thought that there were redeeming qualities to him, but every single episode tore those away more yeah. and more and more. <laughs> Yeah, And it was really interesting because from the beginning, they're calling him a pretty boy. You know, he's this and that. He's a, you know, whatever. And you see his humanity just come away over time. And until the end where, you know, he gets his, the, 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 the his moneymaker gets ripped off of his face. You know, yeah. like his face gets ripped off his face. He becomes but, a reflection um, of his, in, like of his inside, like what he is on exactly. the inside. Yeah. I, I, and exactly. like on the mirror, which was like perfect. I was like, oh. Cool. Yeah, especially because like I love that there is you know that moment right where he's like, oh, I'm never going to be that guy who looks in the mirror and sees a man who lost. Yeah. And like when Frank points his face and he his eyes bulge and he's like begging for his life, it's like good. You know, well, like n- not even that. It's like it was more like the fact that what you have to live with, and then it becomes like you, you already have to live with what's inside of you, but to see that in your reflection every day, yeah, that sucks. What's right. what's great about Bill Russo is he's not a caricature of a villain. He has redeeming qualities even till the end. He's a man of his word. When he tells Frank, you know, like he tells uh, Curtis he's not going to kill him. He's like, at least I'm not a liar. Um, and it's just like he has that that scene where he's talking to uh, Rollins, where he's or no, he talks to his mom, which is a totally fucked up scene. Yeah, yeah, where, I didn't get that. That was so strange. Yeah, I thought that was really actually poorly executed. Yeah. Really? That scene was... Yeah. I loved it. I did too. His mom is like a, reco- a recovering meth addict. She's in rehab and he goes visit, visit her every other week. Um, 
so what's great about that scene is like Frank Castle might be the only friend I've ever had, but he's got to come and try to take away everything I've worked for my entire life. His entire motivation is that he sees himself like he saw his upbringing as being a gutter rat, going from orphanage to orphanage, and he's a self-made man, and that Frank Castle's got to take come and take everything away. And and by the way, again, because he had no family, all of the things that he values are very materialistic and superficial, which is why he's easily willing to betray Frank even when they're in the military. Because the 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 bonds that he has made don't mean anything to him because he's never had bonds. When he was a kid, he had no bonds. Yeah. So it's, I think establishing that through that scene was hugely important. And then right? The needle in her arm uh-huh. is like, whoa, you know, like you're actually a monster. He's a complete sociopath. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I, I, <laughs> man, like I hated him, you know, and, and the fact that I went from, you know, there was a turn, right? Like I always thought that it was going to turn out that he was bad, you know, because I was like, there's no way that this character exists and is like, there's no way that the guy who's like a private military contractor is going to be portrayed as like a holy good guy. There's no way, you know, and it's like, I know that Anvil carries baggage, right? Like, so I kind of was always expecting him to have done something, but to see the relationship, not only that he had with Frank, but with Frank's family oh. and that he did absolutely oh. nothing. You know, like I, and, and that's why I like, I, by the end of the show, I was like literally screaming because I wanted to see Frank fucking beat the sh- I wanted to see him torture him because, you know, like the fact that he feels sorry for himself. I had nobody. And it's like you, he says, it's like you had us, you know, it's like we were your family and you just didn't care. You know, like you were happy to sell us the fuck out. And he tries to act like he's like, oh, well, I told him I'd have no part in it. Like that gives him some moral fucking high ground. It's like, fuck you, Billy. He knew. <laughs> he, like, knew. That, he knew. That scene. He sold, sold them the fuck out. I love the scene where they're at the merry ground, which is such an intense final confrontation, incidentally. Um, and it's very unique in the confines of all of Netflix because it's visually distinct. There's a lot of good shots. But did you guys notice there was no hallway fight? This, this no, no there, there was. There was like very like a small one. But like, I mean, but yeah, I called that out too. I was like, eh, maybe no, is that that it? No, that's not really it. Is that maybe? I was talking about it with my girlfriend. I was like, I feel like they substituted the big hallway fight for like six stair fights. He fights no, in a lot a, of stairs. There's an abs- There's absolutely a hallway fight in like the second or third episode. I think it's the one that's called Kandahar or something like that. Okay, uh, let me, let that's me like the. Th- I think it's the third episode or something. What's the? There's yeah. There's absolutely a, a fight. In the- Kandahar is the third episode. Well, like what happens? Like, am I just? He goes through the hallway and he fights all the the you know the opposition, like yeah. That, that, my I, I remember it because my girlfriend even pointed it out to me. Oh, there's the hallway scene. Okay, maybe it just happens so quick because he's just fucking shooting people. You know, like it's not like a big choreographed fight scene. It's just Frank Ison dudes. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's very. Um I mean, it's a lot quicker, you know. But sure. it's very, very visceral. Well, I just remember like the two different like stealth scenes that they had, like the big like warehouse oh, fight, that all that stuff. Awesome. Like there was some, just there was some cool fucking stuff going on here, man. My, I think my favorite, uh, like, was the fifth episode, like in the woods, uh, and specifically oh. the. D- 
like there were little moments in like the direction that I thought were really interesting. Like, uh, like shots would linger. I, I, I don't know if you guys noticed there, like when uh, Gunner was dying, right? And Frank goes off to go get help. Uh, Frank's like, all right, stay here. And Gunner's like kind of like choking on his blood or whatever. And Frank walks out, like walks away. And like, it still gives Gunner like a second or it gives him more. It gives him like three chances to just like choke on his blood. He's like, Ugh. Ugh. and I'm like, all right, it's going to cut. Cause Frank just left the scene, right? No, nope. I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of intense. And then there was another one where he comes out of the Frank comes out of the bushes and he doesn't just like pounce on the guy. He like he holds and there's just like that linger again. He's just like holding, holding, holding. I was like, all right, all right. Then he like goes for it. And like it was those little like th- those moments were like throughout the show that um was was really cool. It was it, it was it was odd in in the in the pacing and I I really appreciated it. I think in the second, uh, the second stealth scene in like the ninth or tenth episode or whatever, there's a moment like that too where he's like choking a guy, and I'm like, oh, is he gonna like choke this guy out? And like, and then he just snaps his neck, you know, and like he holds it for a second. And it's like, ooh, like it just all the like the kills feel so personal, you yeah. know, like it, they it really feels like very visceral is the right word for it. We've used that word a lot, but that's definitely, like, especially because of just the way John Bernthal acts, you know, like, like the guttural fucking screams and stuff too. Like, it's so like, per, I don't know, personal, well, up close. Uh, I mean, he, he mentions that too when he's talking about like how, like when he, he threatens uh, Zach with the knife, he, he mentions how like that kind of a kill is personal because you, 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 yeah. you're, you can't be, uh, you can't hide behind something, and so you have to like bear yourself out in in that it's not way. It's like yeah, physically dominating somebody, right? And you then know? you just have to be that force, and you have to be like it has to be personal because it is. It's one on one. It's 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 one guy over another guy. Like that's it. Yeah, and it's you or him. Yeah. To, to add on to that, and then to, to go back to Billy Russo, there I, there felt like a distinct difference in the scenes where it's Frank Castle, the soldier or the ex soldier and the punisher and like episodes 11 and 12 and 13, where he's got the skull on it, it, it harkened back to blowing up the Irish mob or going into the hospital. He feels like a force of nature when he's the punisher This hell bent on destroying yeah. everything. Whereas like where he's in the woods with Gunner, it feels like Frank Castle from Kandahar. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Or like the one where he does like the Black Ops mission with Micro and they like invade the base to get the information. Yeah, it feels like so much different. Yeah, he becomes a yeah, t- that's the tactician. Frank Castle. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, exactly. It's more tactical. And like I love that thing where he's like spray painting the body armor again, you know, and and um and David's just kind of like, "Well, they're going to see you." And he's like, "I want them to see me." And it's like, "Oh my god. Like what a fucking Yeah. I, I love it. I love Can JV. we just Can we just talk about that episode by the way where he goes and infiltrates the the military base and how funny it is that uh morty is actually being dominated <laughs> oh yeah, yeah oh my yeah. god like, yeah before this whole thing goes on Morty's sounds being like marco's dominated. friday night Woo! <laughs> <laughs> hey i mean you know like us i i am now one with the uh murphy clan so like you know marco's Tentable girlfriend clan. pours wine on the floor and says you missed a spot marco then <laughs> she spanks I, me Okay, back to Billy Russo. The, sure. the scene when they're it's a, it's a flashback to when Frank and his family and Bill Russo are at the at the merry-go-round, and he tells the story of his namesake Billy the Kid. It is such a good scene. 
The, the scene where Bill Russo is at the carnival at the merry-go-round with with Frank Castle's family, and they're having a really personal moment, and he's talking about his namesake Billy the Kid, who gets betrayed by his best friend, and or he's forced to get gunned down by his best friend, uh, and he was like the best-looking man, and you know he was the best at what he did, and it was just all this excellent foreshadowing. Like the show is just a mastercraft of storytelling. Because yeah. that, that scene set up the entire final confrontation at the merry-go-round. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And then the, the the genius, right, of Leo to say, well, how do you know who you were named after if you're an orphan? I loved that. I you know, love that. Something I really appreciated about this show um, was that it actually found a surprising amount of opportunity for levity. I thought, like, even in serious situations – like, not that there was, like, oh, like, let's have jokey bits to cut the tension. Just the reality of that, like, even even tortured people have a laugh once in a while. You know, like, there are still those human moments. Like, the scene after uh, Frank and Sarah kiss, where uh, him and David are, are back at the base and they're drinking. And David gets, like, sloppy and says a bunch of shit that he wouldn't have Takes said otherwise. Takes his pants off. Takes his pants off and fucking shows Frank his dick, like... That was like, it was so weird. Like, that's such a weird scene for the Punisher, but it's like a human moment. And like, it reminded me of like the kind of camaraderie that I'm sure Frank missed from like being in the barracks, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's the only, one of the only scenes where he laughs. Yeah. Yeah. But right. even then, even in that scene, danger was present because it was obvious that David was not happy with what happened. And then they end up fighting about it. And uh, so that I really appreciated the way they kind of handled those moments. And there were opportunities for laughs that they didn't take that I'm glad they didn't take. So, for example, in the scene where Curtis and Billy are in the house and Punisher has the rifle pointed at them and Curtis, like, pushes the phone over to Billy. I, I thought to myself, I'm so glad they didn't play that for laughs. If I had thrown over that phone it would have stopped halfway and i said that out loud on my girlfriend uh, said it was okay. a marvel movie that's what would have happened and so i'm so glad that they played it straight were appropriate but they found opportunities to break the tension you know when it's that tense and there's kind of an awkward relief laugh it's earned yeah sure it's yeah. absolutely because it feels human it feels real and that might reflect, I mean, I, I don't think we've ever, none of here has been in active combat, but I feel like it probably reflects like a situation that would be over in, um, uh, while you are over there, like in, in that kind of a moment, like you have to find those little moments, those human moments. Listen, Marco, don't assume I've never been in active combat, okay? <laughs> have you? Every time Sean eats... I am the Punisher. Every time oh, Sean eats... Two batch. <laughs> every time Sean eats something that doesn't agree with him, his, his... When he's on the toilet, it's active combat. <laughs> in that regard, we've all been in active combat. I want to talk about Lewis. Sure. Because Lewis was so intriguing as like a minor villain in the show. Yeah. Um, he's totally a Timothy McVeigh stand-in. Timothy McVeigh, for those of you who don't know, was the Oklahoma right. City bomber back in 1992 or three. He was a displaced Iraq war veteran from the, the Gulf War. Um, who was an extreme gun rights activist who took it upon himself to become like a very pro, like give me liberty kind of thing. And also he was kind of like the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and he built these makeshift bombs and just blew shit up and wrote letters to famous like big publications to get his uh, proclamation uh, you know, published. So he's kind of a mix of these domestic terrorists. And the way he interacts with Frank 
and the way that like Frank has to appeal to him as one mass murderer to another is extremely intense, and it also challenges your understanding of Frank Castle and or, or what the Punisher is. I I I think Lewis is a super important character to the show, not just because his arc is interesting and it plays well against Frank, but because I think. Uh, much in the same way that I think that the show doesn't work without David, I actually don't know that it works without Lewis's plot either. Because I think, um, to take it back to some of the political stuff that we were talking about earlier, I think Lewis exists to make a commentary on that. You know, like, he is the most, you know, extreme negative case scenario of what glorifying a person like Frank Castle does, right? He uses Frank's actions to justify his own. And I would say Frank is not a terrorist. Lewis is a terrorist, you know, and I, but that line is paper thin. That's, that's a very interesting uh, point. I think, I think you're probably right. And I think that the line is drawn when you consider that Punisher doesn't, he's not trying to incite fear in the general public. His actions are very targeted. They're very specific. And I would argue he goes out of his way for there not to be civilian casualties. Whereas Lewis doesn't care. And not only that, but he's called a coward multiple times. And it's accurate because he's killing people who have nothing to do with what his problem is. And that's a difference between Punisher and Lewis. Um, and the Punisher's, like, the Punisher's vendetta, the Punisher's mission isn't p- politically motivated. It's revenge. You know, he's not trying to say anything. He's trying to kill people who wronged him. And, and, you know, eliminate people who are hurting people, you know, in that, in a real tangible way, not in a abstract, the government's evil and you're all whatever, you know, it's like, it's not this societal thing. It's these, I know that these men are killers and I'm going to kill them. And speaking of Lewis, one of the most heartbreaking scenes for me personally was the scene with his father. Where his, Every scene what, with his father, yeah. Right, but specifically for me, the one where... Um, right after he kills the, the alt-right guy. Right, yeah. where they're in the kitchen, and his father is just horrified at what his son is, but he still has this admiration and love for his child, and he wants to help him in any way that he can, but he doesn't know how. I'm not a dad, but that's a that's a very real moment. That's a nightmare. Know? That's a yeah, it is a nightmare. And that actor, that father, I'm not sure his name, he did a great job, I thought, with the scenes that he was given. And those scenes were heart wrenching. When when <laughs> Frank is saying to him when he's inside like the refrigerator in the basement of the hotel, your father's the one who's got to live with all this. He's gonna get death threats and angry letters. And you know how it works in the media in general. People will assume he's a bad father because of the actions of the son. Like they're going to be like, well, he must've went wrong somewhere in his development. And everything that Lewis did is going to reflect just as bad on his father. And that's so heartbreaking. And, and going back to like our earlier point about how fleshed out these characters are that even like we can, like we can assume this and it's commented on in the show about a sub like uh, minor character, you know? Yeah, yeah, minor character supporting character. Exactly. Yeah, and and then and then the way the alt right guy just gets in his head because he's looking for purpose and he's looking for drive, and this guy has proven to be a liar, a fraud, and a coward. Yeah, I hated that character because he was a piece of shit. Uh, you know, and I think you know again just to uh, reiterate this point to some degree, right? Is I think Lewis's 
story is another example of how well Punisher develops characters that, you know, like, yeah, he ends up being a minor antagonist for Frank, but that's such, that's such a small part in his development. So much of his story has to do with him and his father and Kurt. Well, to contrast it to another Marvel show, look at the way that Jessica Jones handled Nuke, the guy who ends up being crazy and takes yeah. the pills or whatever and becomes a villain. That that felt half-cocked. That was, For like, sure. not great. It very much felt like we don't know what to do with the rest of these episodes. We need a stopgap before we, you know, get to the finish line. Let's just put Nuke in there. Whereas with this, it felt like Lewis was integral to the story. He had a very clear arc, uh, and he was interesting and compelling, and I thought it added to the narrative. Was it the same purpose? You, maybe, but it doesn't matter because it worked. Yeah. It was effective. But it's it's funny because like it's it it might have been the same purpose, but it works because it's actually part of the plot, right? Like he has a connection to Kurt, who has a connection to Frank, tangential. But what happens is because of that, Frank is exposed as being alive, and that pushes all of the actual main plot shit that you care about forward in a it like lunges it forward, snowballs down. Know? Yeah, right, exactly, and that that changes the entire like that's a turning point for the show. The, every every character that is associated with the military embodies some form of PTSD or another in a really tangible and sympathetic way, and it's heartbreaking because the reality is humans aren't aren't you know designed and hardwired to do the shit we do in in a combat situation, and on an individual basis, it really hurts a lot of people, especially when they come back. And I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking emotionally. And that's something that works so well for Punisher is it has a lot to say in the, in the, in the sense of how hard it is for people to come back from war, but it really utilizes all 13 episodes so well in a way that perhaps no other Netflix show does except maybe the first season of Daredevil. Before we, before we move on, I do want to talk about uh, Dina because she's the only – you know, super integral character that we haven't gotten to yet. And I, I loved this character. Um, Madani was so important to this story. She is, her and Curtis are like the only, you know, really good characters, you know, in terms of, you know, they, they're, they just want to do the right thing and that's it, you know, and they have no ulterior motives. They're not involved in anything shady. They just want to do right. I would say it's colored a little bit because of what he has to do, but I think David is also probably Lieberman too. Well, yeah, yeah. He, his, oh, his intentions are, are pure, especially his family too. Yeah, I could talk for hours about Lieberman, um, but but yeah, you're Such right. A so Le- character, yeah, um, but but Madani is interesting because she her world changes. She's the only character of the sort of like main supporting characters that's not dirty. You know, she. And what I mean, what I mean by that is like nothing has dirtied her yet. They, all the other ones have been through war. They've got burned, you know, like bad stuff happened to them. She's just doing her thing, you know, uh, and she's working up the ranks and everything else. And then bad starts to happen. Um, and it, and it all revolves around sort of her quest to wrong the wrong, right the wrong of the video that Lieberman showed her years ago or whatever that people wanted to ignore. And, it's really interesting the way that her life sort of takes a downward spiral after that. I think she's really cool too, because much like in the way that I think um, 
in the first half of The Dark Knight that Harvey Dent is the white knight to Batman's dark, that's Madani. You know? Yeah. Punisher yeah. is the, you know, he's the well, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like he he's he's the justice outside the law. She's the representation of true justice within the law. And I think that's so interesting too, just because she's the only character that goes through like a true like she has a full pure character arc in a way no other character does. A lot of other characters have an arc, but a lot of it's implied. You know, like the beginning of David's arc happens before we meet David. And that's true of Lewis. That's true of Frank. That's true of Kurt. That's true of Billy. Madani's, yeah, the, the catalyst, the Afghan video, that whole, that has just happened to her before we meet with her. But in terms of like, she has a rise, a fall and a rise again in a way that no other character really does. You know, her being in this position of trying to chase the truth, finding an ally in Stein, losing Stein, and then recovering from that grief and rising to the occasion of doing the right thing and becoming the person that she needs to be um, is, is, is just excellent. You know, it's, it's really excellently handled. And I think her, her supporting cast is really good. Her mother is like, I think really well utilized. Um, and I think like her relationship with Billy uh, is a big part of what gives that character uh, depth. You know, that's, I think, part, a lot of the things that seem redeeming about him come through the lens of their relationship. I, I really disliked Madani at first. I, I was having a real emo, like, visceral response to her because I was like, you're terrible at your job. Like everything that she was doing at Bill Russo, I was like, this is batshit crazy. You're terrible at your this job. This is unethical. This is super, <laughs> like, you're terrible. But like, like, it's, it's all part of the character arc because she overcomes that. She learns from it. And like, because of all that, because she had such a thorough and complete character arc, like really came to her own. I, she became you know one of my favorite characters in the show. I also think that she's being misread a little bit because her relationship with Russo, she had sex with him because she wanted to use him. She was trying to get information about the Punisher because they didn't, she, she rejected him until she saw that Frank was alive. And because she knew that they had a prior relationship, she wanted to see if she could gather information about where he was at. And when she did that, I was like, Oh, this is awesome because she knows she's in full control. He has no sway over her. He thinks he does. But he doesn't, and I love that. She de- definitely does, I think, the dynamic of the relationship changes because she does let him in. She loses control of the situation. Yeah, and I think you're right. She begins the relationship in a position of power and then starts to actually feel something, I think, before she realizes who and what he is. She starts telling She starts telling him vi- like vital shit. I don't think that that ever... Wait, maybe I'm misremembering. I don't think that she ever does anything that puts her in a bad spot due to their relationship. I mean, that was the whole reason her superior yelled at her. He's like, you let him in. And she's like, I know, I fucked up. But what was the context? It was I that she 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 let him get close to her. She gave him a little bit too much information because she trusted him. She believed that he was an asset and that, you know, he was on her side. He Yeah, so, but through, he through knew her, everything. Through her, he was able to uh, figure out Frank Castle was alive. 
And that's when he started calling on the radio channels. Yeah. And then I think, and, right. then, and then that's when he started using her and like tapped uh, her room and everything and all that stuff. And, and indirectly, I mean, this is obviously not her fault, but in an indirect way, this led to Sam Stein being killed. Yeah, I suppose that is true. Yeah. I mean, I would, I wouldn't even, I mean, you can argue in a non indirect way. You know, like I, I would say, like they definitely kind of put that on Madani and, not wrongfully so. I mean, I think Billy makes the point that like um sometimes it's the guy who got killed's fault. I think that's true. I remember literally sitting there yelling like, Stein, why are you getting so close, bud? He's yeah. on his knees. Yeah. You got him on, you got him with a gun. Just fucking stand there. Yeah. Like don't get so uh, you know. He was he was hopped up though. He wanted, you know, no, he he was, wanted to take the mask hot. off. I know, but he didn't need to. That he could have waited for backup. You get him. You know what I mean? Like he was hot. He yeah. said, he said, give me a reason. He wanted to shoot this guy. He got himself killed, but Madani is the reason he was there. And that's true. Actually, I, I'm reading the, the, uh, summaries of the episodes and they didn't learn Frank was alive because of her. They learned he was alive because Frank was at, he, he went to where Gunner was at. Which, which, he, wait, wait, that, because he learned, they learned that because of Madani, because they learned that they were go, that, uh, like because they, they got all the names of the uh, Afghanistan people. No, they wanted to kill Gunner because he knew about the heroin smuggling. Yeah, Rollins wanted him dead because he knew he Rollins' whole goal was to clear up all his loose ends before his promotion. He went to kill. He went. He went to have Gunner killed as a result of that. that. Happened the, and the next day. Remember, she was like, "The only way this happened is that there was a bug in my office." That was the entire reason she went to go look for the bug in her office. Is because it's like this is way too much of a coincidence for him to die the very next day after I say go talk to all these people on this list. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, he's right. Yeah, no, because I, I I thought you were right, Sean, but until he said that thing of it wasn't until they had the file about the people that were in the platoon that they were like, oh, yeah, we got to go kill Gunner. Well, OK, but remember that Rollins saw Frank alive through the video feed. Yes. Mm, wait, no. What? Yes, he what did. Video feed? The, the, oh, yes, yes, the, yes. The, 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 the video feed yeah. of the soldiers. They had, yeah, the, soldiers right. had, the soldiers had video, and Frank said, I'm coming for you. And that's how Rollins knew Frank was living. Yeah, that's true. But um, so I, I want to talk real briefly about just the ending because we're, we're about to wrap up here. Uh, Phil, you mentioned it earlier. You referenced it earlier. For those of you who didn't catch this, Billy Russo being gruesomely um, deformed by the end of the show, but not dead is leading to him becoming jigsaw punishers, main comic book villain. Oh, um, yeah. Which as soon as he got shot in the cheek and his face was, you know, irrever, irrever, irreverably. Oh my God. Irreplicably. Irreplicably. Irreverably. <laughs> We're professionals. Everyone. Uh, yes. Irrevocably, uh, altered. Uh, I knew he wasn't going to die, and I knew he was going to become Jigsaw in that moment. And then that was reinforced, of course, when his face is, you know, brought down through the mirror. That was a gruesome scene. But, of oh. course, we do see him at the end alive, not well. Um, and they make reference to the fact that he may remember everything or nothing or who knows. And, of course, he'll probably end up remembering everything and will or become. nothing and then everything. <laughs> <laughs> and will become, yeah, Spider-Man 3 style. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that kind of leaves us with uh, sort of a teaser for season two, if you will. 
Uh, what do you guys think about that whole sort of transformation and where that's potentially going? He was so creepy with that uh, bandage helmet on. Yeah, he was yeah. good. Yeah, that was really dude. good. Um, I'm excited to see what uh, the actor who played Bill Russo does with this this more mad dog version of, of, of Russo as Jigsaw, who's lost everything. Everything. He lost his wealth, his stature, his material goods, and worst of all, his vanity. So uh, for me, I was very excited by this because I think to your point earlier, Sean, like um, I'm I'm not a big Punisher guy because I think a lot of times stories don't give him proper stakes. And I think uh, the personal angle of of how we've seen Punisher portrayed has been a huge part of what makes him work. And I think um, I was afraid that Billy was going to die when they get because I thought the show only had 12 episodes. You know, we had been talking about it. I remember Phil and I both made that mistake. And um, when we got to 13, I was like, oh, there's a whole nother episode about him hunting Billy. Like, fuck, I guess I guess they're going to kill off Billy, too. And I was glad again when they got to that point, I was like, oh, OK, here's where we're going with this. Good. Great. Because now we have stakes for season two. And whatever ends up whatever, you know, Jigsaw ends up doing, which you can imagine is going to be as horrific as he looks. Now Punisher has grief. And guilt because he, the only person he didn't kill is the same person who will go on to haunt and hurt uh, everyone that Punisher cares about. Yeah, and that'll reinforce Punisher's whole thing of, wow, I should just kill everyone, right? Like, he wanted Billy to suffer, but he probably should have just executed him. Goddamn Billy. I I know I should have killed you. (laughs) That Um, could have been a lot of different characters, dude. Yeah, for a second I was going to be like, does Billy lack vision? Uh, um, I think I think what's interesting too is that Billy also has he also has um, reason to hate Lieberman and I wonder if that's going to be how we keep Micro in the game. He doesn't know he's alive yet for all he knows Not he's yet, dead. But he hates everyone. He hates everyone and all these characters are going to have a reason to fear whatever Jigsaw has planned in season two, and this is the only way that I personally wanted a season two. Because if they killed Billy and all the ducks were lined up and it was over, I don't want to see a show about Punisher just killing random criminals and all that. That's fine, but I, you know, I'm cool with not seeing that. But this, something personal, something real, give me that. Yeah, because that to me is like a thing of like, just let Frank fucking rest already. But this is unfinished business. This is like, all right, cool. And I feel like. If we get one more and then that's it, great. Yeah. If we get one more and that pushes him further into the world of being the Punisher in the same way that this did, maybe I'll actually feel like that's natural by season three, right? Of like, oh, well, he's this is just who he is. This is what he has. So, because that's the thing. I don't think we've seen Frank really become the Punisher yet. He becomes the Punisher when he needs to be the Punisher, but I don't feel like he has the same relationship to that identity that like Matt Murdock does with Daredevil, right? And another season of something like this, that could get us there. Well, it's funny you mentioned Matt Murdock because there are points where I was like, man, where's Daredevil? He's got this relationship with Karen and, and uh, Frank. And I was like, oh yeah, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's going to wrap up our conversation about The Punisher. Overall, obviously, we all enjoyed it uh, to varying degrees. Um, but I think, for the most part, one of the top two or three shows that... Should sorry? we do our numbers? We usually do the number rating. Uh, sure, yeah, let's do our numbers. 
Uh, Pete, go ahead. I mean, I'm going to say like hard 9.5. I'd say like even as high as a 9.8. Like it's really good, man. It's I'd say it's nearly flawless. This has been a spectacular year for the high end of superhero stuff. We got Logan in March and we just got Punisher. I'm going to give this a 9.3 out of 10. Marco? I'm giving it a 9.5 just because I feel like the beginning was muddled uh, with like uh, throwing you into all these uh, like different plot threads and stuff but they wrapped up beautifully I thought Um, and cinematography was cool. Really cool. Uh, I I want to give it a 10. I loved it so much. Uh, it did everything for me that I need a show to do. The music was great. The acting was great. The cinematography was great. Um, there wasn't anything that I disliked enough to take away from the show. Nothing is perfect. But as close to perfect as perfect gets is Punisher to me. Um, and I'm very grateful for this show. Uh, and I can't wait to see what more they have in store. Hopefully the same uh, creative team sticks around for this because this is the kind of high quality stuff that has been missing from the Netflix products for a while. And this is, this is Netflix in rare form. Can't wait to see where they go with it. So yeah, yeah this is clearly, clearly near the top of the pack in my mind. Uh, so you can let us know what you think of the Punisher uh, by, you know, writing to us everywhere that we exist. We're on iTunes. Uh, you can write to us there, leave us a comment, or wherever you choose to listen to this show. Um, you can write to us at the Comics Pals on all social media platforms. Uh, we can have a dialogue with us about the Punisher or anything else. If you want to talk about Doomsday Clock, let's do it. Um, you can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. Um, and last but not least, we are on YouTube where you can check out not only this, which you can like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment, and share with your friends, which is hugely important. Um, but we've got a ton of exclusive content up on YouTube. Uh, Phil and I just did a special um, for uh, the huge wrestling weekend that just passed, uh, NXT TakeOver Houston, and Survivor Series. We reviewed that. If you care about our thoughts on wrestling, definitely go check it out. It was a lot of fun to record that with Phil. Um, and if you want to see us do more stuff like that, let us know. Uh, in addition, of course, we have the Palace Plays, which are going very smoothly. Um, Pete, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, so Pals Play is our daily Let's Play show over on YouTube. Uh, me and Thompson uh, jump into different video games every day. Um, right now, we're, we've got ongoing series about Dishonored, Life is Strange, Shovel Knight, and Super Mario Odyssey. Uh, Phil and I did a fantastic little one-off uh, that went up alongside the uh, wrestling special that we did, where him and I jumped into WWF SmackDown 2, Know Your Role on the PS1. And we basically did a poor man's monster factory. We made some fucking gnarly-looking wrestlers and battled it out for the belt uh so that was a ton of fun i highly recommend you go check it out um yeah it's 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 been a it's been a good show man i i definitely am having a lot of fun putting it together and doing it so i hope you'll check it out if you're interested in uh video games or wrestling specifically for this one yeah absolutely so check out all of our content and let us know what you think about what we're doing and what you'd like to see from us in the future so let's do some plugs pete take it away 
Cool. Uh, so guys, thank you so much again for joining us here on another episode of the Comics Pals. If you guys want to get some uh, more content from me, you can check me out on the Video Game Pals along with Sean. Uh, it posts the day after the Comics Pals on your platform of choice. So uh, if you're an audio listener, it's up on Tuesdays. If you're on YouTube, it's up on Wednesdays. Sometimes we get it up the same day lately. Uh, we're going to try and, and keep that train going. But um, if not, you know, check it out the day later. But um We've also got uh, the Riverdale Review on Wednesdays with me, Marco, and Kale, where we uh, review every, you know, every episode of Riverdale once a week and uh, dive into all the biggest, you know, kind of meat around the show, what's going on, our thoughts on the characters' arcs and all that kind of stuff. So if you're a fan of the show, definitely check it out. It's a good time. Uh, we have a rotating fourth chair. We've had some really fun guests in previous episodes, and we've got some more to come. So uh, if you guys have any ideas of who you'd like to see us get on the show, let us know, and uh, we'll try and track them down. Yeah, um, and just note that we're off this week because the show didn't uh, come out, but next week we'll, we'll be we'll be back. So yeah, yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back with episode but the, uh, 20. Uh, the n- the next episode has uh, Titan Comics editor Amuna Sawin. Uh, that's how you say her name, right? Sawin. Sawin. Oh, Amuna it's, it's Sawin. been a while since we had the portion of the show where Kale mispronounces someone's name. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then the following week, we've got Gabby from the Nerd League coming on as well. So um, lots of stuff to look forward to there. And uh, one last plug. Um, you can also check out the eSports special that Sean and Peggy did uh, if you're a fan of the video game pals and eSports and stuff. So, um, yeah, if you want to get me on social media, I'm at loud underscore Pete. And um, on Twitter and Instagram, go check it out. Uh, talk to me about... I'd love to hear your rankings. Where do you think Punisher ranks on the Netflix canon? I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, did you think it was as good as we did? Let us know. And um, on Instagram, check out some cute pictures of my cat and uh, probably a lot of Animal Crossing uh, pocket camp pics. So check it out. Kill. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Toto Into. That's T O T O I N T O W. Uh, I am also playing at Animal Crossing Pocket Camp and. Uh, uh, my name is Boomer. Please come find me on uh, Pocket Camp. I need those camp kudos. <laughs> Marco? Uh, you can find me at Mr. Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and if you would so like to uh, friend me as well on Pocket Camp, uh, you can find me at Mr. Marco. Uh, and hold on, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys out. I'm gonna give out my code right now, guys. It's nah, no, don't no, do no, that. No, Just no, post, no, post no. it no, on your Twitter. Here's what you're gonna post do. Marco's Twitter. gonna take a picture of it on his no, Instagram. No. Go to his Instagram. No, no, no. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. You're not reading numbers on the air. Fuck right. that. No, no, and, no. Um, uh, and yeah, if you guys have any, uh, as I mentioned before, my like thankful section. If you guys know of any small press that needs some love, like let me know. I'm always down to explore um, small indie stuff. Cool, Phil. These goddamn nerds wanted to talk about Animal Crossing for two <laughs> hours. They said, "There's no way Sean and I were going to be okay with that." Um, <laughs> yeah, check out the pals play I did with Pete. Uh, it's goofy as shit. Baby Carl versus Tom Green in a uh, in a no holds bar ma- series of matches are good. Good as shit. Bit swapping makeout match. Super slam. Sean and I, we did Survivor Series NXT TakeOver War Games. That's another good one. That's up. Go check that out. Um, in general, uh, I am thankful that Punisher came out this week and uh, Doomsday Clock because we got some high-end superhero cape shit this week, and I am always grateful for the good shit. 
So you can follow me at Cyborg Bebop on Twitter and uh, Instagram. That's C-Y-B-O-R-T-B-E-B-O-P. <laughs> I'm so mad that you just did that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really surprised the follow through actually worked. <laughs> How long were you practicing that? I just came up with it on the spot. As for me, I am at Sean Soapbox on Twitter only. Uh, let's talk about any of the cool stuff that happened this week or anything that uh, is on your mind. I am always ready to listen and react. So with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. Happy Thanksgiving, folks. See you next week. Oh my God.